3: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think.
4: Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Is
1: that a helicopter going by? Chicken, chicken, chicken. Can everybody hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Sounds okay? I'm going to let that helicopter pass. Help us,
3: we're surrounded.
1: Okay, here we go. Hanging around. In my bedroom late at night when I was only 16 And I was scrolling TV Guide and there it was On the Sundance Network, yeah there it was A film from Steven Soderbergh I smell sex lies and videotape (laughs) Who's that fresh guy on my TV screen? Got invested when Spader stared in my direction. Mama James Spader is a dream. Yeah, Mama, that Spader is a dream. Yeah. (laughs) Dig it. McDowell has problems with her bow, but she don't tell nobody. So she thinks she's in control, but she don't know. Peter Gallagher's a hoe, yeah, she don't know. He's boning Laura Sangio Como. We're talking sex lies and videotape on cinema possessed here today. I don't care that James Spader can't get an erection. (laughs) Mama, he's surely still a dream. Yeah. Yeah, Mama, he murders every scene. Yeah. Can Andy McDowell make him cream? Oh, yeah, this must be Soderbergh's dream. Can't fuck that last line up. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Cinema Possessed Podcast. My name is Jack Bishop. And
3: I'm Justin Nisham.
1: And each week, we take a close look at one film in our combined DVD and Blu-ray collections and discuss what it was about it that originally possessed us to want to possess it. We'll debate whether or not the film still holds that power over us today. And in the end, we'll decide once and for all if it deserves to keep its place on the shelf or be dipped in shit.
4: Dipped in shit? Dipped
3: in shit.
1: Mm, hmm Y'all remember that classic Peter Gallagher line? You don't even want to touch me anymore. It's like I've been dipped in shit. Oh, okay.
4: I don't remember that.
1: Or maybe I should have said thrown in the garbage. What mm-hmm. are we going to do with all that garbage?
3: That would have been more, like, more sure. uh, recognizable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, dipped in shit was just more descriptive. Damn, I got three in there. Do y'all, do y'all remember that part? Laura San She says, uh, what are you afraid of, Vanya? Eh? I'm going to go fuck his brains out. And then Andy McDowell says, why do you have to say that? She goes, I say it because it's descriptive.
4: It's a good line.
1: I don't remember, but it's a good line. Well, joining us today is uh, the James Spader of this trio, I would say. (laughs) Wow.
4: Corey Clifford. Henry, shush it. It sounded like Henry wanted to be the James Spader shush. of this episode.
1: Do you want to let the people know that you may not be here for the whole thing?
4: Yeah, much like last week, I have another audition. And if anybody was wondering, girl, folks. I was put on a veil and then released. So I did not book Boo. either of the jobs I went out for last week. Mm. Maybe today will be different. Maybe it won't. It's the story of the life
1: of an actor. Yeah, Sorry to hear it. <laughs> well.
3: Thanks. Let's get into it. Justin, what movie are we talking about today? We're talking 1989's Sex, Lies, and Videotapes written by and directed by
2: Steven Soderbergh. I think there are a lot, of, a lot of women out there that'd be glad to have a young, straight male making a pretty good living.
5: Being happy isn't all that great. I mean, the last time I was really happy, I got so fat. Leave, leave.
2: My life doesn't revolve around these little get-togethers and they don't flatter yourself. You know, I look around me in this town and I see John and Cynthia and you and I, I feel comparatively healthy.
5: Are you having an affair?
2: Why don't you let me tape you? know what?
5: John and Ann don't have sex anymore.
2: Did you make one of these damn videotapes? Yes, I did. Okay, I'm recording. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Winner, Best Picture, Best Actor, Cannes Film Festival.
4: Mm, I didn't know that. Mm Mm-hmm,
1: yeah. Not only did it win the Palm d'Or and the Best Actor at Cannes Film Festival, but also right before that won the uh, audience prize at the Sundance Film Festival.
4: Cannes oh, Film Festival is happening right now, too, so timely.
3: Hey. I didn't know Sundance was used to be called this U.S. Film Festival. Exactly, yeah. What, d- it Wait, what, what do you either? mean? It was just called it the was U.S. Not, Film Festival? Yeah, It was not always called Sundance. The Sundance wow. Film Festival
1: wasn't on the map at this time. This movie actually put it on the map.
4: Interesting. Uh, Peter Biskin,
1: the, the author of Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, he wrote another book about the 90s independent scene called Down and Dirty Pictures. And he says, he describes Sex, lies, and Videotape as the big bang for 90s independent cinema because it sort of like started the whole thing you know it was post she's got to have it pre reservoir
4: dogs maybe that was just in my brain because i've heard you say that before but i was describing this movie to somebody earlier this week Mm -hmm. i was like oh yeah you should watch it it was so great and i totally just out of my ass pulled i was like it's really like what started like the independent film wave of the 90s and I remember thinking like I'm just making that up
3: just talking out your ass no you were right. I was right do you think Soderbergh was is the youngest filmmaker ever to have a feature film probably
1: not ever to have a feature film but I mean he was the youngest filmmaker to win the Palme d'Or I know that well that's for sure I don't know I mean there's bound to have been I mean like Spike Lee was in his 30s when he made She's or, Got a Habit? just like 29. Yeah. What I mean, about Quentin Tarantino? Yeah, I mean, Quentin Tarantino was in his late 20s. I know that Paul Thomas
3: Anderson was also really young, too, when he made Heart 8. I want to say he was... Tarantino was the same age as Spike Lee huh? when he made Reservoir Dogs, uh, PTA, let's see. Yeah, see, when he when he made Heart 8. Same age. as 20- Soderbergh. 26. Yeah. Damn. But probably 25 when he... Mm-hmm. Definitely, when he started writing, yeah.
1: Well, and Soderbergh, he didn't go to college. He graduated high school, and he immediately tried to start making films. He he moved from Baton Rouge to uh, Los Angeles, and he had spent eight years trying to make trying to get into features before he
3: did Sex, Lies, and Videotape." So even
1: mm-hmm. though he was only twenty six, he had he had had almost a decade of trying to make a movie. Yeah. Um, also,
3: funny that he was a shuttle driver at Sundance.
1: Yeah. Because he was so modest, basically mm-hmm. about his position as a, it
4: was a shuttle dri- driver when his movie was there. Yeah, uh, when yeah. it was there. Mm-hmm.
1: Are you yeah, sure. Well, I uh, see. I have this sex lies and videotape book, which mm-hmm. has not only the script for the f- film, but it has all of his diary entries before during and after the the making of the movie and it's really it's a really thrilling read as a filmmaker but yeah he um you know he made the movie and he was proud of it but he had no expectations for it to like have an audience he knew it was kind of like a it's a talky movie it's kind of slow and so he was just happy to be at the festival and he just wanted to meet people and he figured the best way to do it was to volunteer they had a volunteer driver program and everybody at the festival was like, you want to do it? And he was like, yeah. Because he, he was like, I get to go pick up celebrities. He was like, I met <laughs> Jodie Foster. I met all these different people who came to the festival just because I picked them up from the airport and drove them to the festival.
4: That's so sweet.
1: Yeah. Uh, what was your relationship to
3: this film prior to this? Did you see this early age, later age? This was definitely a film, film school find. Mm-hmm. Had a huge impact on what I was making while I was at film school. I don't know if you remember that stupid <laughs> T- brother sister in yes. the attic thing, yeah, with the with the with audio tape, little, cassette tapes. cassette tapes, <laughs> some incest, some uh-huh. potential incest. Yeah, vibes going we got to dig that up. I want to watch that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was really that and Benny's video, things like that, were yeah. really inspirational to me at the time. I just liked the idea of um, you know analog uh, integrating into something that you were you were shooting in some yeah. way and mm-hmm. find, discovering something through that. I still so. like it. I also discovered the limey. At the same time. Yep. So I was like, okay, this this guy's on to something. And so this was, was this, had you, what is the
4: Limey movie?
1: Mm-hmm. A Soderbergh oh. movie. Like, were you aware of him as like Ocean's Eleven director or any of that stuff?
3: No, just Limey, Sex Lies, then getting into some of his weirder stuff like Bubble. And yeah. Obviously, I saw Out of Sight when I was a child, mm-hmm. but had no clue didn't that connect was connected to the same filmmaker. Yeah. yeah. Probably didn't realize that was Soder- Soderbergh until years later.
1: Yeah. I definitely I knew who Soderbergh was because of Out of Sight. That was definitely the first thing that I'd seen of his and I was a really big fan of that movie. So that's kind of how I learned who he was. You know, that's a very stylish movie and then he did end, ended up doing Ocean's 11 and that has kind of a similar kind of style. So at that point in time that was kind of who I thought he was purely, you know, was that kind of a guy who made like heisty movies and fun comedic crime movies. Mm-hmm. I'd He's heard. good at it. He's good at it. He is Ocean's at it. 11 is a yeah.
4: banger to this day.
1: I'd always heard of Sex Lies in Videotape, but I thought it was like a sex movie. Uh, I knew it was an indie movie. And I have to say, the videotape part of the title did, I think, prevent me from watching it for a long time because for whatever reason, my mind connected it to like straight to video or something. Would you
3: have preferred his
1: alt title, Mode Visual? Oh my God, his alt (laughs) title. Mode Visual? (laughs) Mode colon Visual. Yeah, he had some pretty pretentious ones. Did you hear about the other one that's like 4602 or something? Mm -hmm. And he was like, he talks about it in his diaries that that was kind of his favorite because he liked the idea of people going into the movie and being like, why is this called 4602? And thinking about the whole movie and then the idea is that After at the very end of the movie, when Peter Gallagher watches the tape, (sighs) when the tape cuts off and goes to static, the camera would pan down to the VCR and the the time code would say forty six oh two, and the audience would go, "Oh!"
3: Literally makes me gag. I was, I had a gag reflex.
4: (laughs) It's like what is this supposed to be like a Shyamalan twist? (laughs) It's so funny,
3: so bad. And Uh. they
1: so like he had a list of titles. Sex Lies and Videotape was on the list, but he didn't think it was like that powerful of a title, but everybody who was involved with the movie like looked yeah. at his list and was like, this is definitely the best of the bunch. But actually, nobody thought it was a great title. They were all certain they were going to change the title at some point. Even the, the financiers, RCA, very much had the same inclination as me when I was a kid, where they were like, we love sex. We can market that word easy. We can market lies because that's <laughs> drama. But videotape, that ain't a good word for a movie. And so they were like, Can you find a different third word? And they were they were all just like, We're never gonna call it sexualized and videotape, but they couldn't think of a better title. So when they started sending it out to festivals when it went to Sundance, it made such a splash. People were scalping tickets because they were selling out all the screenings for it. So when they came out of Sundance, they were like, Well, this movie has gotten tons of press as sexualized videotape. We're just that's what the movie is. Now they didn't change it after that. I think it's a great title. I think it's perfect. provocative. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What
3: did you uh did you watch both trailers, the Miramax cut yeah. and the Soderbergh Yeah. I like cut? the Miramax one. It's better. <laughs> I do like that the conceptual footage that he shot for mm-hmm. his version made its way into the the Miramax cut. Yeah, which it's was interesting nice that they humored him. Yes. And it did work, you know. Yeah,
1: it I read about it first before I watched them. I re- he talked he wrote about it in his thing. He was like this movie doesn't really market well, like this Just what happens in the movie doesn't really cut together great in a trailer. So that was what inspired him to want to go just shoot original footage for the trailer. And yeah, he described it in his book. He's like, we shot all these beautiful interiors of a VHS camera, and we're like gliding the camera. We're using a macro lens and all this kind of stuff. So in my head, I was imagining something really cool. And it's not not cool, but when I actually saw it on the Criterion DVD or um, Blu-ray, I watched his cut first, and I thought hmm, that didn't quite meet the expectations in my head, and I can't say it's a great trailer. Yeah. And then when I watched the Miramax one, I was like, that's a fine trailer. I just don't, (laughs) I I
3: think as a filmmaker, you have to have some willingness to advertise the product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you don't, and you're just trying to be artsy, Mm -hmm. it's a little baffling to me. It's like, how clueless can you be? Yeah. You have to advertise the movie. Yeah there's a 26
1: years old yeah first time true, filmmaker true, you gotta give him true, some cred true the diary entries kind of reveal he was he was wrestling that inclination a lot of like he wanted to shoot this movie in black and white but they were like we're not gonna fund the movie and so he he had to like break down on that he was iffy about James Spader mostly because at this point in time James Spader was known he was a pretty well known actor but he was Bad like Bad Boy Spader mm-hmm. yeah he was he was in Pretty in Pink and he was in um New Kids Yeah, he he was kind of like a
3: teen heartthrob. And Wall Street, too. It's like Mm -hmm. he had quite, of all the cast, he has quite the prolific resume at this point.
1: Jack's back. Remember, remember when we yeah, all watched that back.
4: movie? back. Oh, that movie was so that good. That came out right
3: before Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I miss that Spader so oh, much. That, I know.
1: Yeah. I mean, this, I would say Sex, Lies, and Videotape is pretty prime Spader. Yeah. Like, it's good Spader. I haven't
3: revisited Secretary in a while. Does he recapture that a little yeah. bit in yeah.
4: Secretary? So that's just interesting that he just brought up Secretary because, the, I mean, this could be for a later part, but I went and saw the movie Sanctuary this week.
3: Mm. Is that a new movie? Yes, yeah,
4: a new know. movie out. It's a two-hander with Christopher Abbott and Margaret Qualley, Andy McDowell's daughter. And I saw it the day after we watched Sex Lives and Videotapes. And the whole time I was like, "This is so crazy" because they're probably the exact same age in mm. both these movies. Both movies are about sex. Both are like contained indies. And I just was like, "Oh, they're pulling so much from Sex Lives and Videotape." But now that I'm thinking about it too, they're pulling so much from Secretary. From Secretary? Mm. Mm. Yeah,
3: is it a good movie? I
4: actually really liked it. Mm -hmm. I had it's only the two of them, and especially right off of like literally the next day after watching Sex Lies and Videotapes, I thought it was a really interesting pairing. So go watch this movie, guys, and then go out into the theaters
1: and see. Couple couple fun fun fact. Oh oh, I was was going to get get your fun fact.
3: Uh, Andy McDowell used to go to a yoga studio that I went to in LA. Wow, she's, she's probably the celebrity that I've seen the most. She and feels like a seen, yoga girl. Yeah, and have had interaction, like, you Nice. Know, very nice, I feel yeah. like she seems And seen she's seen just, snow. like, walking around. I've seen her in a coffee shop. Yeah, she like, seems chill.
4: Did her hair look as incredible, incredible. as it looks in movie? She still incredible. looks great. I can't, but her hair is, like, what you dream mm-hmm. of your hair to look like.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she's stunning has Gina Davis adjacent I agree I thought the same thing I
4: thought the same thing
3: Um, other fun fact I was in a Steven Soderbergh movie oh my god you were in no you you were a cameraman
1: in
4: uh, oh yeah
1: Contagion Mm -hmm.
4: I fucking remember when they were auditioning we were all in college during Contagion and they were like come down they, they, I don't know. They were doing it like out of some church or something, like auditions. And I fucking everybody I knew from acting class. We all went and auditioned, and just sing at their role. Well,
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, the role is kind of a stretch. I, well, I mean, it, <laughs> it was like, all we were yeah. all quote
4: unquote auditioning for extras. Every were another. you with
3: me? Did we go together? Or no? Um,
4: I don't, I can't remember. It was yeah. like in a church or something, like in like outside of the city. Mm-hmm. I feel like my I'm scene, sure we did. My
3: scene was with Lawrence Fishburne. Mm. Where he's giving like a press conference mm-hmm. and very little instruction about what to do or what was going on. You have no concept of what the scene is yeah. when you're there. And um, yeah, you just see Steven Soderbergh far, far away in the distance. Just <laughs> I remember that being my first introduction to him. I was like, why is the director moving the camera so much? Yeah, And that was maybe around the beginning of the time he started shooting on red too. Mm-hmm. Red uh, cinema cameras. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a one day. That's thing. cool. In Can and you and see you in the movie? Um, I'm very far away. I, I, wouldn't to, I, I wouldn't be able to. I could say I'm over there. I'm sure. with this group, right. but you can't. I want to pause face. it and like
4: yeah. zoom in Law and Order. And you SVU were holding style. a camera,
3: right? <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. I'm Photo like a camera new, or a video camera? Video camera and like <gasps> news reporter. Videotape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How
4: much did you get paid? I don't
3: know. 150 <laughs> remember. bucks Probably or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, was it. A uh, production office intern on source code around mm-hmm. the same time. Yes, two movies that I had not seen until mm-hmm. like Contagion. I did not watch once until the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> <Great> specifically <laughs> because Contagion, there was yeah. a pandemic. Yeah, everybody did. It kind of had a
1: little comeback in yeah. the pandemic. Yeah,
3: I liked the movie. Me too. Yeah. I saw it, we saw it in theaters. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Funny story about Source Code too. Uh, I won't name any names, but we once had a we <laughs> so once had a really big meeting with the head of a really big commercial agency, and um, the guy came into the meeting, and he gave us this big spiel about how excited he was to like meet us. He'd heard so much about us. He'd seen all of our work. He was like really excited to bring us into the fold. And then he points to Justin and he goes, "You directed Source Code, right?" Oh oh my God. (laughs) And uh, he had clearly just skimmed IMDb. Seeing that Justin had a credit on source code.
4: <laughs> Knew you guys were directors. Yes. Assumed They're my
3: biggest credit on, on, on IMDb. It's the first thing that popped. up.
4: Assumed that he directed it. Was
1: unaware that source code was directed by Duncan Jones, who is David Bowie's son. Big director. Directed Moon. Directed World of Warcraft. He was unaware of that. He just assumed Justin directed source code with and Jake Gyllenhaal. He thought, do
3: you think he thought I was David Bowie's son? <laughs>
4: So what I was knew, it like growing up with David Bowie? As I knew dad. right then we were in
1: for bad meetings. Dun-
3: <laughs> if you say Duncan Jones 10 times fast, it kind of sounds like Justin Yeah, sure. <laughs> you have <ever laughs> a meeting with Duncan Nijum?
1: A Duncan Jones?
3: <laughs> he had all these Bowie questions. Prepared. <laughs> what was it like growing up with David Bowie? Could you imagine if that was how he started? Oh my I God, thought,
4: I would have cried. I mean, we had to
1: do the most awkward thing of like looking at each other. <laughs> Then looking back at him and saying, "No, didn't direct source code was actually just a PA,
3: <laughs> a PA, and like seeing an intern, the blood. <laughs> the credit is intern, production office intern.
1: <laughs> the blood draining from his face when he realized uh, that. I remember thinking, like, this meeting has been ruined.
2: Yeah. He single
1: handedly
3: just yeah. ruined this meeting for it's everybody. It's not fair. It's not fair.
2: Yeah.
1: Should I?
3: I should just go remove that credit." <laughs> Could you imagine if that happens twice? If that, happens oh, twice that happens twice, I'm, twice re- yeah. I'm removing it from my <laughs> IMDb. What was your uh, trivia? My er, fun fact is that
1: uh, Andy McDowell was pregnant on this film. Mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. revealed to Steven Soderbergh on day four of filming that she was pregnant. In
3: your her. opening song had one misleading lyric. Mm-hmm. He can get a boner. James, I guess that's true. James Spader can technically get Just not in front of another person. Exactly. Yeah. So for all intents and purposes, he's impotent. <laughs> Look. But he still can jerk off.
1: That rhyme was, that was my proudest rhyme, though. You needed because it. You needed it. <laughs> it well, worked so well with the, the real You lied. A little, you lied.
3: Oh, yeah. You know, it was on theme.
4: <laughs> <laughs> the chorus was a little shoehorned in there.
1: Well,
3: yeah. Uh, so in video yeah. <laughs> I got to give Corey some credit <laughs> for that you. song.
1: Because... This is a hard one. Sex, Lies, and Videotape is a long title. It's seven syllables. So it's hard to find a song with a chorus that has seven syllables. And I literally went through a gamut of... The first song that popped into my head was Sex and Candy. But like Corey just said, it's sort of clunky.
3: Mm-hmm. I but smell that's part sex, of the fun like, of it. You have to embrace that. But I
1: wasn't sure if that was the best song at first, mm-hmm. so I was exploring other options, and I I, I started breaking down what are other seven-syllable song titles, and I thought of Kylie Minogue's Can't get you out of my head. Sex, lies, and videotape. Boy, that's all that James Spader thinks about. No,
3: no, no.
4: But you need... The the other one is better.
3: Yes, for
1: sure. I did another one with Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, (laughs) sundown, you better take care if I find you've been creeping. I did sex lies and videotape. It's the debut feature Steven Soderbergh made. I mean,
4: that was nice. All of them
1: are nice, but it's like, how many listeners are Gordon Lightfoot Mm, fans that are going to like really give a a shit about that? Mm. So I was like, one day we were driving in the car and I was just sort of staring off into space and Corey goes, what you thinking about? (laughs) And I was like, I'm just kind of having trouble figuring out a cold open song for this for this movie, and Corey immediately said, "I smell sex lies," and and I was like, "Yeah, I thought of that, but it's clunky." And you agreed. You were like, "Yeah, yeah. it's really clunky." But what you revealed to me is like,
4: "That's the first thing." That's you're what think the audience of. is yeah. going to want to hear. You mm-hmm. know, like, that's a song that's going to make people groove. Exactly. As my mom said, she said she told me that she <laughs> was grooving <laughs> to the last song, and I agreed. I agreed with her. You
3: could also drop consonants like uh, like. Uh, Laura Lauren Giancoco does uh huh, Giacomo Giacomo. She just keeps dropping consonants like mm-hmm. when she speaks, you'd say videotape instead of <laughs> oh, yeah, video, <laughs> videotape, videotape. She says she has that yeah. one line where she's like, a uh, fucking brains out. She doesn't even yeah. say his, she drops s's oh, yeah. a lot too. I oh, I never speaks. even noticed yeah.
4: that. That's so. Uh, that's such mm-hmm. a good specific. She's really good. And her oh accent gosh, is really good great. in the movie, too.
1: Mm-hmm. She's from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. She's putting on a pretty good Southern accent. She
4: did. I was impressed with the accents in this movie.
1: And Annie McDowell's is pretty authentic. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's just what she she's sounds like. She's from the like. South. Fun fact about Annie McDowell, too. At the time of this movie, was mostly known as a model. She actually had a bad reputation as an actress because she had previously done a Tarzan movie where she played Jane. So she was like the second lead of the movie. Mm. But they ended up having to completely redub her Completely because of her southern accent, they decided <laughs> that it was like stupid. And you know who dubbed her? Glenn Close. Oof.
4: Interesting. So
1: she was kind of um, Is um there.
4: Like, can we see this? Yeah, you can go watch the Tarzan and it's movie. Glenn Close's voice? it's Glenn Close's wow, voice wow, coming weird. out of Annie McDowell's face. I want to. I want like to look at that. Um, but I'm so get yeah, my eyes
3: on that.
1: When that happened, of course the the media and stuff were like, "She's a bad actress.
3: That's why." Well, they that, I blame her. the film production. 100%. Yeah, like, totally. You're it's disgusting. not her disgusting you hired her mm-hmm. knowing what she sounds like. Exactly. And then you do this thing retroactively that makes her look awful. And then also for all you Southerners out there, mm-hmm. makes you shameful.
4: Makes Shame- shameful.
3: She Th- was done dirty. People are trying to silence you because how you talk. <laughs> mm-hmm. Shame.
1: Sandy McDowell got done dirty.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: yeah, when she auditioned Soderbergh loved her, but everybody else is like, really, dude? Yeah, of course you you love her because she's hot. That was the whole thing is like, you want the model. And he was like, no, she's great. Like, watch the tape. And I th- agree. I think this is a
3: star-making it's a performance. It's hot podcast all around. Oh, my oh God. Man. This is literally my
4: first note. Sex, everybody is very attractive. Sex,
3: eyebrows, and video That's yeah. what I like to call it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Peter Gallagher's caterpillars oh. walking around <laughs> on his face.
4: He is, is, I was telling Jack when we were watching the movie, like, half the time, I mean, more than half the time, 90% mm-hmm. of the time, I'm like, damn, snackity-snack. But then sometimes he looks at the like camera, and he looks googly-eyed and kind of like a
3: goober.
1: Yeah. He's sort of perfect for the character. <laughs> yes, totally. Yeah. It He's works great.
3: He's perfect for the character. I love it. He has one line in the movie that's honestly one of the best performances I've ever seen. It's mm-hmm. when she's confronting him about cheating she on had her, an affair, Yeah. And she's like are you fucking my sister like she nails it she yeah. like says the thing yeah. that yeah. is actually happening she's like my god I'm not fucking <laughs> your sister and he like looks off to the left and his voice cracks he literally oh, goes god. like for one thing I'm not even attracted yeah. to her oh, for god's <laughs> sake he's so obviously lying and it was just so
1: that is one of my favorite scenes because it's just like so fun to cause he's a lawyer, lawyer. like <laughs> imagine if I went into the court and was like your honor I have a feeling it's all based on intuition uh, he, yeah. the Gas way he just tries so to hard. dig him mm-hmm. dig his way out of it is so funny yeah, and, but then turns the tables
3: around on her and tries to it make works, her feel bad yes that like he comes home he gets and- her
1: to apologize by yeah. the end of the scene she's saying sorry to him it's so it's
4: crazy because peter gallagher in my head until uh, i don't know oh i mean for sure when i was growing up the only thought of him to me was that he was sandy cohen the dad on the OC, yeah. So I wonder, like, what that was like when that show was really popping off for like our parents and stuff, being like, "Oh, really? He's doing this like teen show now."
1: Mm-hmm.
4: But he was making that coin. He did.
1: He he said he got typecast after this movie because of the way the character was written. People really despised, mm-hmm. and they couldn't separate the actor from the character, and so people just sort of assumed that was all that he could play, or that's what he was like that in real life. Feels like something from the Stone
3: Age. I know. Yeah. Are you really that dumb? And also, people in Hollywood like. Agents and even Miramax. You know what, I think wasn't- it
1: happens with beautiful people because the same thing happened with Andy McDowell. People just like assumed that she was just playing herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, and I think people think that about any sort of like, if you're hot. But you're ditzy it's really they hard assume for you're beautiful ditzy.
4: people. Also, dude, there's a, there's a
3: theme <laughs> happening. We talked about the, the, I mean, this is kind of related, but you know, Elizabeth Berkeley with with yeah, uh, exactly. sh- uh, showgirls. Mm-hmm. But then also the way that that movie was treated in general and how agents were not sharing. Like Elizabeth McGowan
1: Who was the
3: first actress he went out to.
1: Are you talking about Soderbergh instead
3: oh. of Andy McDowell? He wrote the script for uh, the girl from The Outsiders. Oh, okay. Oh. McGovern, Elizabeth McGovern. Okay. And uh, she never got the script. He wrote the movie for her. Her agent read the script, hated it so much because yeah. of the sexual content. Oh. Yeah. And a lot of people were just assuming that this movie was pornographic, mm-hmm. which it's like, it's the opposite. It's You don't see a single titty. No. No. And but it's very sexy. It's very, very sexy. sexy. but it's all about speaking. But just like Hollywood then, and I don't know if it weigh in if it, we still have this problem, but like this puritanical, but it, it's like things have definitely feel, feels to me like things have definitely got overly sexy. In Hollywood and advertising and commercials, sex feels like it's used all the time to sell. It's, it's still but back-
4: taboo, I think, but yes, it's used to sell yeah. all the time. It's in every television yeah. show. It's in every, yeah.
3: Yeah, uh, he didn't want James Spader. Just
1: assumed all he could do was Pretty Boy stuff, but he sent it to some other actor and that actor had the same manager as James Spader. Tim Daly was, was the, the actor, actor. He was going yeah. out for, yeah. And James Spader's manager said, hey, you should read the script. Uh, a lot of people are, afraid of it and James Spader said sounds perfect and he read it and became obsessed with the character and actually like fought his way in because Soderbergh kind of wasn't interested in seeing him
4: what did he say in the book or in his um diary about how James Spader was like this role is oh yeah (laughs) yeah he kind of like he was
1: so invested in the role had so many ideas for it that he wanted to talk about it all the time. And that you know, like the constantly throwing ideas to Soderbergh about what he could do and what he could do with the character. And then like right before filming, <laughs> he came up to, to Soderbergh and he was like, I just want to prepare you that like pretty soon, this character is not going to be yours anymore. It's going to be mine, and I just want to like. <laughs> there's just
5: like something so.
4: <laughs> and like... Soderbergh
1: was like, honestly, take it. Like I've sure, I've...
4: like it, the the sentiment is good, like yeah, obviously, but there's something so like, hey, Justin, just so you know, <laughs> this is mine now.
1: Yeah, this well, is mine now. Everybody's accounts of working with James Spader is that he's great to work with, but that he's weird. And he's intimidating, yeah, and that works perfectly that. for this character.
2: Mm-hmm. I
3: think he literally, he verbatim said, I'm the captain now. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> then I really became obsessed with him again uh, when I saw Wolf. Yeah, mm-hmm. He's so, so fucking good, good in Wolf. Mm-hmm. And people rag on that movie, but to me, it's like, there's no better... By the end of that movie, when Jack Nicholson and James Spader are fighting Insane. as wolves, there's no two better actors to cast as werewolves. <laughs> Than Jack Nicholson and James Mm Spader To be going toe to toe. And Michelle
4: Pfeiffer. Damn.
1: That's a great film. And anybody who thinks otherwise can F O. So I saw this movie on the Sundance channel for, there was a one year period, probably 16, 17 years old, when my parents splurged and bought all the movie channels for like a year. Wow. Uh, So on our cable package, we had all the encores, we had all the HBOs, and it was a fucking dream. I discovered so many movies that way. I discovered Albert Brooks that way. That's how I saw Modern Romance. That's how I saw Koya and That's how I saw Sex, Lies, and Videotape.
3: What would Modern Romance have been on?
1: I think it was on an encore. I think it was on encore comedy, because they had encore comedy, encore westerns, encore action, every version of a channel they had. And yeah, I'd heard about this movie, and I knew it was Steven Soderbergh, but I'd never tried to watch it. And I was like, oh, it's coming on. I'll, I'll watch it. And immediately got sucked into this movie. Something about the 90s indie vibes, I've always had like a real attraction to. If a movie kind of has this low budget, early 90s sheen to it, I'm already like 50% there. And when the performances are as good as this. And for a movie that is like all talking and technically slow, I feel like it does a really good job of just like being exciting mm-hmm. from sure. like a character standpoint. It gets going right away. And it gets going. Yeah. yeah.
3: Speaking of channels, uh-huh. Max is official now. Oh yeah. Uh, I had more to, HBO. I had to I opened the old HBO Max app and it, it doesn't work anymore. You have to it makes you download oh, it's a whole new app. It's a whole new app. Why can't oh, they just shit. Okay, the we picture. gotta re-download. Why that? can't they just change the also
4: list? in media news do you see all the we didn't talk about this at the top. Uh-uh. But Netflix are what? you on our Netflix?
3: I, I am on your oh, Netflix. Oh, they're cracking it's down. It's going to crack
4: down. I don't yeah. know when. We haven't gotten the official email mm-hmm. yet.
3: How does that make you feel? I mean, obviously, you're going to boot everybody off. But <laughs> I feel bad. How does that make you feel about having a net, like that Netflix is doing that?
2: It's disgusting. The, it seems
1: dumb. It's, you're just going to lose interest. I've already lost interest in Netflix. Do
3: they think, so that they think all, theoretically, uh-huh. you boot the four or five people sharing your account uh-huh. off. And all five of them say, no problem, and just start subscribing. We're not going to be pissed and say, you know what? I don't fucking (laughs) need Netflix Mm -hmm. and not subscribe to it. Exactly. You're going to keep your account, but I guarantee you of every five people who get booted off, For sure. Three, maybe four will resubscribe. And then those are
1: less views for your fucking original content, you dumbasses. Yeah, if if I was in the position of somebody who was booting off of somebody else's account and I got kicked off, I wouldn't... Absolutely not be in any rush to to go get Netflix myself because I watch literally nothing. And
4: we all know that they're the holdout for the writer's strike right now. So it's like you're just making us not like it even more. Mm
3: Idiots. They're I think idiots. it's the end of an era, and can't, they can the and they also don't forget lest we yeah. not oh, forget. Yeah, yeah, they're getting rid of their physical. They've already gotten rid of their mm-hmm. physical media. So speaking of physical
1: media, what'd you watch this on?
3: I think again, same as you. We're same. on a roll. We're on a roll, brother. That Criterion. I like the slipcase. I like that it it looks like. You know, it's got the video Mm -hmm. filter on it. Uh,
1: What is your feelings, relationships towards Soderbergh in general?
4: I really knew him from Ocean's Eleven. Mm -hmm. I loved all of those movies. And I mean, I really love Sex, Lives and Videotapes. I'd be interested to go back and watch more of his stuff because, I, I mean- You didn't ask me, but my relationship to this film Uh is that we watched it, uh, or I watched it for the first time a couple months ago. Yeah, I had very strong feelings—anger,
3: anger—in my soul. Watching this, Mm -hmm.
4: get get
1: those out now, just in case you have to leave. Like, what what are Um, your general feelings? I feel
4: I feel less angry the second time watching it, but the first time watching this, I fucking hated Annie McDowell—not as an actress, the character. I thought she was such a prude bitch. (laughs) And Jack was like, You're being a misogynist. I was like, No, I'm not. I'm actually rooting for the sister, even though the sister is in the wrong and she's cheating on her sister's Mm -hmm. husband. All of the things that are horrible, for sure. She's just more likable. She's way more likable. She's cool. She dresses cool. She's funny. She's, I mean, but she's
3: borderline evil yeah she's
4: but like, andy mcdowell is so mean to her in the movie she's like constantly like talk her with her little bows in her hair she's like she doesn't respect that she's a bartender rude she doesn't respect her artistic lifestyle rude she's always judging her she has such like a her nose up into the air about her yeah this time she's around a, andy she,
1: mcdowell is a goody two shoes she's yes, stuck she's up just a she's fucking a prude
4: goody two shoes now this time around the second time watching this I, I mean, she's so cute and like I really, she's such a good actress too. Like I was more sympathetic to her this time around because she's in a crisis. But I'm more sympathetic to her until we start seeing how she is with the sister, and I still start to turn on her. I'm like, why are you I being don't, so judgy? I, it
3: feels, it feels like a hundred percent coming from a long history of her sister betraying her and like probably fucking guys that she's interested in.
1: Well, I, I, don't don't if if I, I don't know if I necessarily...
3: believe
4: that because I actually think that... I think
3: it comes from a long history of sibling
4: rivalry. Sibling rivalry. I think because they both
1: hate each other. But they, they don't but, hate but each other. But at the same they, time, they, they don't, don't because it.
4: like her sister, like when Peter Gallagher's like, oh, 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 did you tell your sister? She's like, yeah, I tell my sister everything. Like they yeah. have an anger toward each other, but they also are... Like Annie McDowell's calling her, telling her all about like not having sex, all of these things. She knows... They tell... they. They don't like each but other. But it's not like she's a good sister. But they love because each other and they tell each other everything. They are each other's weirdly best friends. Of they course, tell each other yes. everything. That's a right. complicated. But, but how, Cynthia well. also
1: in her opening scene says, "I would love to." Not only is she ha- fucking Andy McDowell's husband, but she says. You know what would give me a perverse thrill to fuck you in her bed? Of
4: course, she and is. T- I would love up to
1: tell the world how up. bad of a lay she is. I, I, so she, I know does, she, she. She's, she's not a both. good sister.
4: She's no. She's not a good sister. But Annie McDowell's not a good sister no, either. No, and she no. is. I just did not appreciate how judgy McJudgerson <laughs> she was. But she's
1: correct in her judgment. I
3: think it, it doesn't make sense to me to assume that this isn't a pattern because we see it yeah, maybe. two times. The mo- a movie. Is the most important day in the character's life, mm-hmm. and if in an hour and a half drama we see her fuck two people that mm-hmm. she's well, she obviously didn't
4: fuck, she didn't fuck him, she just. But
3: you know what I mean. Yeah. She's pursuing him. She Absolutely. watched the second Absolutely. she finds out Andy McDowell might have. I'm not a saying. New guy I'm not saying life, that's not true. She's out to fuck she, him. You're you're and, right.
4: You're right. And, 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 I, and I, also, I think that that was more apparent to me in this watching, but I just did not. I just didn't appreciate how judgy
1: she was. There is also like a mom element to this too, where it's like they talk about their mom, and it's very clear that Andy McDowell's the one who thinks about mom, and and Cynthia is sort of like uh, who you know like whatever about mom, and so I got a feeling there's a thing there where it's like. Andy McDowell is the good girl mm-hmm. and Cynthia has always been the bad girl that doesn't get a I I guarantee you their mom thinks more like Andy McDowell. Their mom probably looks down on Cynthia too. And it's caused Cynthia to become more of a rebel, more of like, all right, I'm going to embrace the fact that like, yeah, I'm not a good girl and I fuck around. And I think Andy McDowell has been raised in the Southern lady style of like, you find yourself a husband. You become a housewife.
4: You don't fuck around. You give him what he wants. But she's judgy to her sister because her sister didn't choose that path. Yes, she is like she looks down on her sister as scum. Yes, because she hates her own life.
1: Of course, yes, that is the point of the movie. Is like she she's realizing that her life fucking sucks, and she doesn't want it. She thinks she wants it. She thinks she has it, but she's coming to the realization that she doesn't want that. Yeah. To
4: go back to your Soderbergh question. I don't know him well enough
1: to... to Yeah, in general, I have to say I don't get like super enthusiastic when I hear about a new Soderbergh movie, and that's mostly because he is really hit or miss when it comes to his movies. He's made a lot of them. He tends to make like a movie, if not two movies a year. He's very prolific. He's very experimental. He's very playful. And that's kind of what I appreciate about Soderbergh is that he's always sort of... He's willing to fuck around. He's kind of always on the front lines of new technology and new ways of doing things. He was one of the first filmmakers to embrace digital filmmaking, like you said. He was one of the first to embrace iPhone filmmaking. He's fucked around with how to distribute a movie, how to finance a movie. He's always trying to kind of like break norms. And so you can't hate, you got to love the guy for that. And the fact that he just clearly loves to make movies. He makes them all the time. And He's the cameraman for his movies. He's the yeah. editor for his movies. He loves the total pro. He sound designs his yeah.
3: movies. He still gets me out to the theater. Unsane, I saw in theaters. Oh, yeah. I did. The, that's the iPhone movie you were describing. I one loved. of his
1: iPhones. He's made like yeah. four of them at this point. Now. I think that's the last one, though, right? Uh, High Flying Bird was an iPhone movie that came out after that.
4: Didn't he do a movie with, um, that was like an improv movie with like Meryl Streep? Oh, yeah. Um, um, I liked that one. That was one where
1: they were on the cruise ship. Yeah. The thing about Soderbergh is that sometimes he'll come out with a movie that nobody else gives a shit about that I will just love to death. Like, Behind the Candelabra. Oh, I fucking love that movie. It was my favorite movie of the year and nobody gave a shit about it. The Informant, the Matt Damon movie where he's like breaking a corn conspiracy. I oh, yeah, love that, that movie. Good, it's so fucking good. I loved um, Bubble. You mentioned Bubble. Mm-hmm. That was one of his first like digital. That was one of the first movies that convinced me that you could make a good movie with like, digital cameras when I was real skeptical. About the it.
3: Nick was a really underrated TV show. Did you ever get into that?
1: Never saw it. No, but awesome. I, I've heard it's good.
4: Steven Soderbergh directed Aaron Brockovich. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: So he's got. he's I'm got back
4: on the Soderbergh. He's got movies
1: that every. He directed Aaron Brockovich. He d- Traffic. directed Traffic. Traffic. Ocean's Eleven, Out of Sight, Magic Mike. These are movies that Out of sight, a lot of people I love. love that movie. These are huge movies. We already talked about how Contagion had a total resurgence.
3: He has
4: directed so many movies. I'm telling you,
3: so, this man is prolific. The thing about his career that I like the most is the model of his career, right? The idea... Two for you, one for me. Mm -hmm. Sure. That's what I want to be as a director. I think even when he's
1: making movies for other people, kind of like what Corey said, he's making Magic Mike that gets people to the theaters to see sexy Channing Tatum. But in the end, he has another story he wants to tell. Uh,
4: There's a dance that takes place in water, which they do live in the Magic Mike live show in Vegas. And if you can see it, you should see it. It's truly an incredible show. It's beautiful. I went fucking feral we were literally screaming that was the, one of the sexiest things I've ever seen in my life in person and then Channing Tatum did the dance with this beautiful dancer mm-hmm. where they're dancing in rain doing crazy things and that is maybe a tangent but that is in and I, I think Soderbergh. Yeah. I thank him for that for he that has gift. he has
1: mass appeal because he's he tries his hand at so many different things
3: you know what I would love to see hmm. please screw M. Night Shyamalan's hmm. universe okay I want to see a Sodaverse. I want to see Sex, Lies, and Magic. Magic, Mike. Having erectile dysfunction. Oh, hey now! And you're, you get Liberace in, in get him in. in the mix, get him in there, and uh, get
1: the Ocean's Eleven <laughs> yeah. team
3: to pull apparently, some apparently they, they have to fix his boner. They got to right? find
1: the the videotape that will give him the erection he needs.
4: Soderbergh isn't <laughs> is is got a flair for the sex for sure because he did the oh, first yeah. Magic Mike. He also did
1: the girlfriend experience. He
4: didn't do the second Magic Mike. Then he went and saw the Magic Mike Live Vegas show and was like. I got to do this third one again. Um, but do you know he, he was inspired?
1: Do you know he he didn't direct Magic Mike 2, but he was the cinematographer?
4: What? Yeah.
1: So he was still on set. He well, just Magic didn't want Mike all the Magic Mike 2 is literally
4: only about the sexy dancing. And they did it right. But that's hilarious that he was the cinematographer. Yeah.
1: Interesting thing about him is he, because he shoots edits, does the sound design, does so many things. He doesn't like the idea that his name pops up a bunch of times on the credits, so he gives himself pseudonyms for all these roles. So he has edited the movie, he's edited all of his movies either under Peter Andrews or Marianne Bernard, which are both fake names in reference to his parents. Which is like they're both tributes to his mom Aww. and dad. He's written, like he wrote Logan Lucky under the name Rebecca Blunt.
4: Oh, I liked Logan Lucky. I mm-hmm. forgot about Adam Driver.
1: Uh, yeah, he he will always put a different name on it and and when people ask him about it, he'll be like, Yeah, they're working on another movie, so they're not available to do interviews or press for the movie, but it's it's all him wow. who does it.
4: Um, okay, I do have to bounce to go to this audition. Um, I'm auditioning for the role of Trish, so Trish. Exactly. I feel like I said my piece though about magic mike and that's well really maybe by the time important. you get back
1: you will be sort of at the final thoughts stage and yeah you can... i
4: mean my final thoughts i loved this movie it's a great time even I, though you hate andy mcdowell i don't hate andy mcdowell and i'm saying the second time around i found a lot more sympathy for her mm-hmm. i thought she was a prude but that's just because i'm so
1: cool well let's take a quick break and we will come right back to continue talking about
3: sex lies and videotape
1: Welcome back to Cinema Possessed. We are talking Steven Soderbergh's debut feature, Sex Lies and videotape. We talked about how this movie does have like an energy to it. Movie opens with kind of a lot of energy. You get a cool like POV shot of the road. You get this cool like guitar Mm -hmm. in your face kind of like Mm -hmm. and you see James Spader driving Mm -hmm. into town. We talked a little bit on the Oh Brother Art though that the Coen brothers like to write characters that are these sort of mysterious figures from the outside world that sort of come in kind of wreak havoc on the protagonists you know like they bring this sort of of mysterious danger to it and that's totally what James Spader's character is here he's this otherworldly
3: figure yeah
1: he's a disruptor in
3: so many ways so many more ways than one I mean his for people who don't know Spader from this era I mean there is a quality to him that you don't find in a single other actor yeah I feel like I mean his it, not just his look but the way that he behaves is alien mm-hmm But it's part of the appeal. It's part of making some sexy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's like always riding the line in this movie of being sexy and dirty Mm -hmm. and weird and like skeezy too. Yeah. He gives himself a, a whore's bath in the bathroom of a gas station have you ever had to take a sponge bath? No. We did I did once in my life, there was a really bad lightning storm going on outside.
3: In LA? No, yeah.
1: this was in Arkansas. This was oh. growing up. And my parents, or at least my dad, truly believed that like you should not take a shower when there's lightning, mm. which I think maybe is an old wives' tale. Like I'm not so sure the validity of like don't take a shower with lightning, but he believed it big time. And I, so oftentimes I hated taking a shower as a kid. So Usually when there was like a big thunderstorm, I was like, sweet, I'm not having to take a shower tonight. But I guess I was particularly stinky or something because my parents, they were like, you have to take a sponge bath. And I remember my mom calling it a whore bath.
3: <laughs> i never heard that before.
1: you would never heard the term whore bath? Mm-mm. We had a big old pail that our dogs would drink water out of in the backyard. And my parents drained it, brought it into the kitchen. And they were like, here's soap, wet the sponge in the sink and the soap and like stand in the pail and, and like wash yourself down. We'll leave you to it.
3: And your whole body or just like your pits and your gooch and your butthole?
1: Technically a whole body. I just mm-hmm. am using like a cup mm-hmm. and water, you know, pour water from the sink and just pour it on myself.
3: Do you shower every day now? Yeah, every day. Do you skip a day?
1: Oh, yeah. Every now and then, but yeah. not necessarily by, you know, it's mostly just out of circumstance. Yeah. yeah. It feels
3: weird every- to me to take a shower in the morning.
1: Me too. I'm a nightmare because I don't like going to bed dirty. Yeah, or, or sticky. I
3: feel like some people take a shower morning and night.
1: Yeah, I know a lot of people who are two shower a day people. That feels too
3: much. It to is me. too much. Yeah,
1: it's not. But and yeah. I don't really want to start my day getting underwater either.
3: If I'm in a hurry, I I'll just rinse the pits, the the mm-hmm. the privates and the honey yeah. dips. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> feet maybe, but yeah, I don't. But it's like I don't bother scrubbing my arms. Either yeah. Or my,
1: Sometimes midway through the day, if I realize, oops, I forgot to put on deodorant in the morning and my armpits are kind of stinking up my Mm -hmm. shirt, I will go scrub my armpits with usually just hand soap. I'll just do it at the sink. I'll do that probably once a week, honestly, (laughs) because I'm really bad at remembering to put deodorant on. Mm -hmm. I did it today. So we get kind of this cool montage where we get sort of introduced to all the characters, and it's kind of cross-cutting between them as we are hearing Andy McDowell's character, whose name is Anne, talking to her therapist. Garbage. I just think about all the garbage in this world and what we're going to do with it. And she mentions to the therapist that she's a little bit stressed out because an old friend of her husband's is going to come stay with them for a little bit, which is James Bader.
5: He invited this college friend of his to come stay at our house and he didn't even ask me. I'm going to say yes, of course, but you know, it just would have been nice to have been asked.
2: What upset you about that?
5: I guess it makes me angry because I can't justify being angry. <laughs> it says house. He pays the mortgage.
2: Yes, but he asked you to quit your job. And you do have housework.
5: Yeah, I have housework. That's true.
2: Uh, this unexpected guest, notwithstanding, how are things with John?
5: Oh, they're fine. I mean, they're fine. for I'm kind of going through this thing where I don't want him to touch me.
3: But...
1: <laughs> <laughs> and she explains that she's never really been into sex. It's just not something she thinks about. It's not that she doesn't like it. She just doesn't really think about it. Well,
3: that's why I think it's a little bit more, her character is a little bit more interesting to me than just, you know, like what Corey was saying about her being a prude is, mm-hmm. yes, there's a cultural component to it. I'm sure Annie McDowell is basing, also basing the character off of, southern family she knows her own family that's like a real thing but i think the character specifically you have james Bader, who's impotent yep and you have this character who doesn't really think a lot about sex
1: also impotent in a way yeah it's her own impotence, impotency I,
3: I felt like there's a little bit more depth there i think a lot of people assume that everybody is ravenous about sex in like the same way yeah. but i do think that there's a percentage i don't know how big of people who let's just say that they're not prude or let's just say they haven't been socially conditioned this way or they're not afraid they're just maybe the brain is not as interested in it mm-hmm. as somebody else. I buy that I well, I think that. a
1: lot of what this movie is is um investigating too is like what makes people feel sexual, you know, and like what in james spader's case, it's like he cannot become aroused unless he's Distance, detached from the person and doing this whole process of videotaping them and stuff. It's not, maybe not as extreme, but Annie McDowell needs more. She needs a more of an emotional component in order to become sexually aroused. And clearly her relationship with Peter Gallagher is just, it's not giving her what she needs to become sexually aroused. Yeah. And maybe, and it's clear too that she's like probably never had an orgasm um, because the therapist asks her, like, do you, Masturbate, and she laughs.
5: Oh. laughs. oh, oh, God, no, no.
2: Mm-mm. I uh, take it from your response that you you never masturbate.
5: Well, I tried once. It just seems so. St- stupid. <laughs> I don't know. It just seemed like a dumb thing to do and god, you know, and then I started worrying that my my dead grandfather was maybe watching me, you know, and Oh, it just seems so stupid. You know, especially when you don't know what to do with all the garbage.
1: Meanwhile, while we're hearing her say all this stuff, we're seeing her husband Peter Gallagher. Is having an affair with her sister, Cynthia, played by Lara Sangiacomo. Also, did you notice that her name is Cynthia Bishop, which was my mom's name? Whoa. Anne was my mom's sister, also sisters in this movie, and my dad's name was John.
3: Wow, that's So there's wild.
1: John, Cynthia, and Anne, and there's specifically a moment when Laura Sangiacomo comes into James Spader's apartment, and he's like, who are you? And she goes, I'm Cynthia Bishop. And it's like, it always mm-hmm. throws me a little bit that like- So was, it, ha- was it
3: hard to be attracted to her with, with no, a name like that? No, not <laughs> Laura Sangiacomo.
1: Did you ever watch the show Just Shoot Me?
3: Uh, Was David Spade. David Spade.
1: Uh And she was, that's how I know her from. She was like one of the big characters on that. Mm -hmm. She's really good. She's good. And this was her first film. She'd never done anything before this. And uh, you could tell from Soderbergh's diaries that he was probably in love with her Mm -hmm. because he talks about her a lot in the diaries, just thoroughly impressed with her. He mentions her almost every chapter entry where he's just like, she really impressed me. She did such a good job. She's bringing so much to the character. It's like, you were gaga for, mm-hmm. for her. <laughs> so after we see Cynthia and John have sex with each other, we get this scene where we get to hear Cynthia's feelings about her sister, Anne. And Cynthia clearly thinks Anne is a prude. And this is when she says, I, you know, I would love to have sex in her bed. It would give me a perverse thrill.
5: You know, I would like to do that at your house sometime. I must admit, the idea of doing it in my sister's bed gives me a perverse thrill. I wish I could just come right out and tell everyone
2: Anne's a lousy lay.
0: The beautiful, the
2: popular Anne Bishop Mullaney. Could be risky. How about I just start a rumor then? No, no, I mean doing it in my house.
5: Ready to get caught? Yeah. You should be. Can I meet this friend of yours?
3: Oh, well, Graham? I gotta tell you, we were very close many years ago, but I... I think we're very different now.
1: So then Spader enters town and he arrives at Ann and John's place. And this is a funny scene where Andy McDowell and James Spader first meet each other. He brings her strawberries that he picked up on like a roadside strawberry thing. And he immediately asks where the bathroom is. He goes to the bathroom, but he comes right out and he's like, false alarm. <laughs> <laughs> so they sit down and start talking. And he immediately starts digging in. He starts this thing that becomes a quality of his character where he's like, Disarms people, but then starts to
2: like interrogate them. How do you like being married?
5: I like it just fine.
2: What about it do you like? And I, I don't mean to be critical on...
5: No, 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 curious. no, that's okay. <laughs> well, you know the cliche about the security of it. Well, that's true. <sighs> and um, we own this house. It's a nice house. And, well, John was just made junior partner. And I really like that. <laughs> you know, I like the fact that he's just not, you know, freelance or whatever.
1: Yes. Yeah. James Spader said what interested him the most in the character was the dichotomy between being passive, but also being aggressive. And you can totally see that where he's like, He's always playing it like, I'm just talking, but he's always digging at something. He's actually being very aggressive with his yeah.
3: questioning. He manages to pull it off, but in real life, mm-hmm. the quality of asking somebody a question and they respond incredibly honestly is nice. Yeah. The opposite, where they pu- ask you a question with that much direct honesty and, yeah. and prying is incredibly unsettling. Yeah. So when you meet people like him in real life, um, you, you want to get out of the room yeah. as fast. It feels that, dangerous. It's one of the most uncomfortable things, like, oh, something is off about this person. Exactly. Um, they didn't even judge you up before. They don't judge you up before they ask you these questions. You have to make me feel it's true. comfortable before you go right in. When you just go diving straight into my yeah subconscious, mm-hmm. you're
4: insane. <laughs>
3: Well,
1: he knows. I do think he does try to disarm a little bit. I think that's part of what the strawberries are for. You know, if you notice in every one of these scenes, he always offers the person something. Strawberries in this scene, it's iced tea in the other scenes, you know? So he always starts it by like giving a little thing. And obviously, he's a handsome man. He dresses all in black, which becomes sort of a significant. Thing about his character, he knows he's got an attractive quality about him, and he's using that to to get people to open up a little bit more to him.
3: Also, just going back to false alarm, that's also really unsettling too. It's funny in the yeah. moment; it's like it's funny <laughs> watching it, but that would be another red flag. Oh that yeah, I'd be like, what? You would
1: be questioning like yeah. what? And, and I'm questioning even at the watching the movie, like what's going on here. And I'm like, is it a penis thing? Like he's got penis stuff. Yeah,
3: he's got penis stuff.
1: I actually, I'll I'll set it up now. I'll get into it later. But I have one of my little Jack theories that may or may not be preposterous. Set it up. But it, I'll just say it has to do with his little penis stuff. Um, but I'll get to it when we get to yeah. It. Duh. Um. Yeah, and then by the end of this scene, he goes, I think I'm ready to use the bathroom now, which is so funny to just imagine that he's going to go take a giant shit. (laughs) (laughs) He walks out of the room. She just like watches him as he gets up and walks to the bathroom.
3: (laughs) Have you ever had a false alarm?
1: Well, I've talked about how I've had bashful bladder before where I've needed to pee and I go in and there's somebody else. Yeah, but that's not a false alarm. No, it's not a false alarm, but what what happens is I come out and I still need to go pee, so then I'm like, thinking, how do I explain that I'm going to need to go back to the bathroom pretty soon?
3: <laughs> what makes you quit? Like, for example, when you've been standing for a long oh, enough yeah. time uh-huh. and you realize, oh, this is the bashful bladder thing. This is actually- Why not? What makes you get out and leave rather than just staying and and saying, it's going to come out eventually.
1: I had to kind of consider this myself and it's kind of what helped me through it. So basically the issue is, is that I would walk up to a a, a urinal And then another person would walk up into the urinal next to me. They unzip, and then there's that moment when everything goes quiet, when neither person has peed yet. That's the moment where I start getting into my head because I'm going pee, pee. Make that urination sound come into the toilet. And when that's not happening, I'm starting to like get in my head. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the gears start turning like, Did they also notice that there hasn't been a pee sound? And then all of a sudden, they will start making a pee sound. Mm -hmm. But in my head, I'm going, they can hear that I'm not peeing still. And so what are they thinking? In their head, they're going, this guy's just standing at the urinal. They're going to get done peeing, and I'm still going to be standing there in silence. There's still no piss coming out of this guy's dick. These are all the, the, the thoughts that are going through my head. But why do you care? I mean, it's not like you know these people. Look, you can't explain psychological things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, you're right. Why do I care? I don't know. But you can't tell that to your brain. When your brain is deciding that somebody's judging you on something, yeah. sometimes that's all your brain can think about. So then eventually I just zip up and walk away because I can't take it. That's what used to happen. Mm. The fix was once I realized this, it was all kind of audio related. Nowadays, I go up to the urinal and I immediately flush it so that this sound immediately takes away the silence part of it. And normally, that's all it takes, and then I start pissing, because there's already noise happening. Mm. So, like I said, I don't really have that problem anymore. Mm-hmm.
3: And I also, in general, I just try to go to a stall. I have no false alarms. If, I, if my bowels are grumbling, mm-hmm. I'm going. Mm-hmm. I've never sat down and realized, that sat down with the intention mm-hmm. to two, right. and, and not been able to two. The two? Yeah, number two. Oh, we were talking about number two? Well, I've switched topics. Oh, I see, I yeah. see, I see. Now, oh, i went back to false alarms. I see, I see. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: think his false alarm might have been pee-related, though, just because everything, yeah. t- to me, feels I think it's related pee, pee related with him. I think
3: it's pee-related. But that's that's odd to, to think you have to pee. You're alone in privacy, and yeah. it was a false alarm. Yeah,
1: it's, it makes you think, what, what was he doing? Mm-hmm. So then we get a dinner scene between her and John, And Graham, this is a really good scene, too, because you really get to all these scenes are just expressing the dynamics of these characters. You get more of Peter Gallagher being an asshole because he immediately starts going in on what he's
3: wearing. He's like, what is up with this outfit? Who died? And he rags on his calls him an undertaker for the art world. It's like what? And he's still wearing blue jeans. It's blue jeans, cool black boots and a with a black button button tucked in.
1: Yeah, Peter Gallagher definitely represents like the yuppie mm-hmm. who's who's just totally bought into the capitalist world. And then he starts kind of ragging on Andy McDowell too. He's like, dinner's not bad tonight. Usually you reach a critical mass with the
3: salt. Mm-hmm. I tell her <laughs> you can always add more, but you can't take it away. Which is true.
1: Hey, that's true. It's not bad, but.
3: Which is funny, though, too, because I feel like most often I find people under salt the food. Yeah. So it's funny. It's like it's very rarely a problem. In the South, the
1: the salt's a little bit heavier. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little heavier in the South.
2: Um,
1: We get to hear that uh, uh, Graham had an old girlfriend and John seems to be poking at the fact that like maybe he's going to maybe he's here to go see her, which is not untrue and then uh graham explains that he has a a one key lifestyle
2: no it's just, i you know i just uh, right now i have one key you know everything i own is in the car and i just i like that you know i mean i just if i get an apartment that's two keys if i get a job, you know, I might have to open her close. get some more keys, you know, buy some stuff, I'm afraid, afraid it's going to get ripped off or something, I get more keys, and I just, I, you know, I just like having the one key, it's don't clean. Don't worry about right. losing them, I always lose my keys, I hate that. You get rid of the car when you get the apartment, No, I uh, still have one key. No, I don't like having the car, you know, yeah, no. car is important, got to be mobile. Does she have to leave someplace in a hurry? Yeah, or go someplace in a hurry.
3: Does this scene make you laugh? I like the scene. Oh, it's, it's hysterical. But I, I, well, it's, I don't know. I take it very seriously. I'm like, huh.
1: Oh, you start considering I, the one key lifestyle no, yourself? No, I don't consider <laughs> it. But I'm
3: like, it feels like a serious scene to me. It just was interesting to me, Soderbergh saying how many people laugh at the scene. Well, I think it's it's also the
1: Spader vibe of it too. I mean, Spader brings that uneasy comedic vibe. When you get, when you feel uneasy and somebody's good, you know, it's, you and I talk about this all the time. sometimes you laugh. You laugh when something is good. That's what people are feeling. They're just like, this is good. This whole uh, dialogue kind of reminds me of a lot of 90s i feel like in the 90s it was really big for characters to have like lifestyle mottos that they expressed in a sequence like this you know it reminds me of like mr pink and reservoir dogs being like i don't tip i don't mm-hmm. believe in it you know mm-hmm. it's for the birds also or, or uh robert de niro and heat who's like you know Never uh, have a relationship with anything you can't drop 30 seconds flat when you feel the heat around the corner. <laughs>
3: <It's> so stupid.
1: <laughs> it was like popular in the 90s. Yeah. And maybe this movie was kind of part of uh, setting that trend because this did come out in 1989. This is the movie that sort of kickstarted the 90s yeah. in a lot of ways. And he says too, uh, Peter Gallagher asked him, like, do you even pay taxes? And he's like, of course I pay taxes. If I didn't pay taxes, I'd be a liar. And a liar is the second lowest being on the planet. And Andy McDowell says, "What's the first? And he says, "Lawyers," mm-hmm. which is what both Peter Gallagher yep. is. Yeah, that's, that's you, great. honey. Yeah,
5: it's <laughs> <That's> so funny.
1: <laughs> so you automatically you see what their relationship is. Lying is a big. You know, this movie is called Sex Lies and Videotapes. That's a big thing with his character. He's he's Mister Honesty. He does. He's that's one of the things he's clearly learned in his journey of these last
3: nine years. There's a quality to him that's like, okay. Maybe there's a problematic guy underneath here. Yeah. But also there's somebody who's trying to elevate themselves above the mere mortal, you know, uh, or beyond seeing beyond the veil of society Mm -hmm. to live more honestly. Yeah. But.
1: But within that, there is a little bit of like a a corruptive power that he has. Yeah. There's a sinister quality to his character as much as he is, I think, affecting these people for the better ultimately, but. He's taking them places they don't want to go, necessarily. Yeah.
3: I also like the detail of her clearing the table and Spader offering to help. And she's like, no, I got it. But they don't cut to close up of Peter Gallagher. But you can see him glaring at Spader. Because when I've been in this situation before, like in, uh, you know, different cultures where it's a little bit more common for that expectation to be there for women to clear the table Mm -hmm. or whatever do dishes after dinner i've offered to help and i get dirty looks because it's like yes you're breaking the cultural you're putting a thought in their head that maybe there's another way because they're not offering yeah because they don't want to they don't want to and so when you offer you make them look bad yeah so Peter Gallagher is feeling like, "Hey, man, don't disrupt the yeah, social it's order here. Patriarchy here, yeah.
1: here man. Yeah. You liberal piece of
4: shit.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I want to continue being a piece yeah. of shit. What the
1: fuck, get out of my house." The one detail that I noticed in this scene too is that they're eating strawberries with sugar, mm-hmm. which for the longest time was my all-time favorite dessert as a little kid—just strawberries with sugar on. It's
3: it. good. Do you like strawberry pie?
1: I've never had strawberry pie. But. There
3: was a pie place in the suburbs by me in Chicago called Baker Square. Mm-hmm. It was all American diner food. The quality of an Olive Garden. Yeah. But they had pies, also bad quality. <laughs> but it was, as a kid, it was like, yeah, the strawberry pie, mm-hmm. all the classic stuff. It was good. To me,
1: the classic restaurant where I got my strawberries. Waffle House. Wendy's. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wendy's had strawberries. So Wendy's, did you ever go to Wendy's as a kid when they had a salad bar? Yes,
5: that was used to be this thing that was potatoes also. Oh, yeah, they They had
1: baked potatoes Mm -hmm. and they had a full salad bar and pretty often my family would just go to Wendy's and I would get a hamburger and fries I'm getting hungry. Yeah, my parents would get the salad bar. Mm -hmm. And the only time I would go to the salad bar was to get them strawberries (laughs) and they were good. They in fact, Wendy's had strawberries that had like a almost like a jam mixed in with it. They were really Mm -hmm. syrupy syrupy. Ooh, that was my favorite. Do do fast food places even have fresh fruit anymore? No. Fresh fruit? Yeah. Probably not. Maybe if you got like the kid's meal, but it's probably not fresh. It probably comes in a little package Mm -hmm. and open it up. Yeah. It's like
3: space, space dehydrated strawberries (laughs) that they reconstitute with water. (laughs) Yeah. And also they were drinking. I noticed like the colors in this scene too, the Mm -hmm. red strawberries and the red wine. Mm -hmm. I was like, this has got to be something, you know, lust or maybe anger or I don't know, just like this interesting dynamic of red between the three of them. And then when Spader and her... Are drinking wine later it was a white wine mm-hmm. you know with iced tea mm-hmm. uh yeah i do get the vibe that
1: stoderbergh was not really paying much attention to the production design he was kind of <laughs> leaving that up did you hear all that stuff where he was like didn't even really notice until editing like all the things that were hung up on james spader's wall yeah and he actually ma- got sued for one of the things i didn't hear know that that? he got sued yeah a, there was a xerox of an artist's work that artist sued him well after the movie came and out, he said it was really scary. Did he win did the artist? He won. Win? No, the uh, they won because uh, they were able to argue that because it was a Xerox, they were never, and it was clearly a Xerox. They weren't trying to portray it as the original piece of art. They were clearly trying to portray it as like a copy, mm. and that in turn, like won them the case. That they weren't trying to like couldn't be accused of stealing it, essentially. Yeah,
3: well, he said that nobody was thinking about that exactly. stuff on First set, film. you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Spader made that map. Uh, do you see that little detail? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you he know, has a map
1: in his apartment,
3: put out his routes, all the places mm-hmm. around the U.S. he's traveled. Yeah. I think that's fun when an actor brings, yeah, it sounds
1: like this was a total communal effort between everybody who brought mm-hmm. things to their character. Um,
3: plus, go, you know, uh, wardrobe shopping with Peter Gallagher, at, yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, that's fun when you can make the actor part of the choices and it's
1: just going to make them more invested. Mm -hmm. That's why Soderbergh said when Spader said, you know, eventually this part is going to be not going to be yours anymore. It's going to be mine. Soderbergh was like, I would love that.
3: I mean, maybe in certain situations you would be defensive about that as a director, but I find it strange why you wouldn't want the actor to be like, please, like you're not going to tell me what. To do with the camera, right. or what shots to do, or change the story. Yeah. But dialogue changes. Ask first. Yeah. Or talk in- to me. Improvise after you've done one take with the lines. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, make the character yours. Yeah. Of I mean, course, that's, that's, what that's the you whole want. point. That's what acting is. You want them to be de- that's devoted. Like, to that's it. like a, to me. That that feels like a DP going up to you and be like, "Just so you know, this camera's mine." Yeah. But I mean, I guess that would be unsettling too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, i we do. maybe I'll cut this, but we had multiple uh experiences with uh, John C. McGinley <laughs> on Stand Against Evil, where he had his own ideas about the character that were different from our ideas. and uh sometimes he was right, and it, but it was alarming every time. It was sort of a thing where we had to consider do we fight this or do we not? And there was like, you know there was there was one where he had to pick up a can of beer that was supposed to be filled with bees. And he did a take of it and he didn't really react to the bees that much. He picked up the can and he goes, Schlitz, I haven't seen one of these
2: cans in a long time. There are bees in it.
1: And then he dropped it. And so on take two, I came up to him and I said, hey, maybe on this one, like when you see their bees, maybe be a little more kind of afraid of it. And he just goes, no. (laughs) And I was like, no. And he was like, Stan wouldn't do that.
3: See, my interpretation of that moment was he forgot that there were bees in it in the take, so in hindsight, he was I do, I, I agree with himself. that because
1: he had so zero reaction to the bees in the can that I was like, does he realize that there supposed to be a bunch of bees in the can, you know? And so that was really my note was just sort of like, and we get a little acknowledgement physically, but like I remember being like, maybe he's right. Maybe Stan wouldn't react so big to it. It's a delicate balance between... Because I think John was pretty in tune with Stan. You know, he was at times almost method when it came to Mm -hmm. to acting like Stan. So I don't doubt that he was truly trying to think of the character. But sometimes you have to think about the movie, too. You have to think about everything else. It's
3: hard to know when an actor thinks it would be funnier to not have a reaction Mm -hmm. and to be stoic. Yeah. But then make that part of the conversation of like, hey, I hear you guys. Yeah. But... um, It has to read on camera. I know. want to do. If it's not reading, let me know. But I'm playing it. I'm underplaying it because yeah. I I want Stan. I think it's funnier. Stan is is tough and yeah. Yeah, sure. He could scream, but I like, think that what was he what he was thinking in his yeah. Mind. It just wasn't doing. It wasn't. It, it
1: wasn't yeah. making the moment better. Yeah. Those are the kind of things you have to deal with mm-hmm. when it comes to an actor. So we get a great scene where uh, John calls Anne's sister and says, "Anne's not home. Come on over. Let's." Let's do what you want to do. Let's have sex in the bed. I I thought it was interesting, too, that um, Soderbergh never puts a phone filter Mm -hmm. on any of the... Did you notice that?
3: Yeah, I liked it and I didn't like it. I wish he did something...
1: Because it's crystal clear. Yeah. It's like a he voiceover. He wants it to be
3: intimate, mm-hmm. and it definitely is It's right in your ear. Mm-hmm. But I wanted the quality to at least match the quality yeah. of the person on the line.
1: When a character is talking on the phone in a movie, the person on the other end of the phone sounds like they're coming from a phone, mm-hmm. usually. Yeah. But in this movie, they just sound like they are being a voice from God.
3: Yeah. I don't think it helped the movie no. for me. It didn't make it. It's yeah.
1: probably one of those artistic touches mm-hmm. that he was just kind of like playing with. Mm-hmm. Which... I feel like Soderbergh doesn't have a lot of like stylistic trademarks. You know, he's almost like in between of like a journeyman director and an auteur. I would say he's an auteur in the sense that like he's playful. And when you watch his movies, you go, oh, this movie feels kind of experimental. And that's one of the things Mm -hmm. in this movie.
3: He also several times does like these more like elliptical edits where he shows you the beginning and then he leads up to something, but he... Doesn't show you it. And then he right. cuts to like the end. He does it at least two or three times. And I love it. Yeah. Like it makes me feel something yeah. really powerful in a way that I wouldn't feel if he just did it linear. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: At the very end of the movie, he has like a really experimental mm-hmm. transitional cut that we'll talk about. Cynthia comes over to have sex with John. She's looking really hot in this outfit. She's in all black. She looks very Stevie w- Nicks. witchy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Peter Gallagher is laying on the bed with the plant. Covering his penis, Peter Gallagher's Mm -hmm. idea. It's hilarious. It's great. It sounds like Peter Gallagher came to this character with a ton of ideas. Yeah. Kurt Stoderberg specifically said, like, on the page, this character was extremely two dimensional. And, you know, even in reviews, people were critiquing the character of John as being two dimensional, but he was like, Gallagher brought so much more dimension than I brought to the character. Like he came up with all these different ideas and he sort of goes through them in the commentary and in the diary of all the different things this uh, Gallagher brought to the character. And it's immense. Basically, every scene has a little aspect that Gallagher was like his idea. And they start having sex and you get the first half of a sex scene and it is very sexy, but you don't see anything. So, this restaurant scene is sort of the pivotal scene of the film in which. Anne is being really open with Graham. She's clearly starting to, like, bond with him. And she's talking about things that she would talk about with her therapist. She's saying like, she thinks sex is overrated and she doesn't believe in the idea that women want sex just as much as men because she doesn't really want sex as much as men. You know, it's different for her. She asked Spader to tell her something personal now that she's told him something personal.
2: Do you want me to?
5: Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I don't want it to be something gross about some scar or something. I want it to be something <laughs> really personal about yourself. You know, All right,
2: know okay, I'm impotent. You're what? Impotent.
5: <clears throat> you are?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, well, I can't... I can't get an erection in the presence of another person. So, for all practical purposes, I'm impotent.
5: Does that bother you?
2: No. Doesn't make
1: you feel self-conscious. <laughs> um <clears throat> not usually. And she has such good reactions mm-hmm. to this. I think he's doing a really good job of riding the line between almost being embarrassed. Like he's very vulnerable in this scene.
3: We learn later from a detail that he reveals later that he's practicing radical honesty. Yes. He's intentionally pushing himself to be more honest and Mm -hmm. more vulnerable i like it do you
1: think that this movie was at all the inspiration for liar liar could be you think maybe
3: i feel is there not a line in liar liar about lawyers being yes there is yeah
1: lawyer well he says my dad is a liar Mm -hmm. and the teacher goes oh honey i think you mean lawyer
3: yeah and goes, "Oh, yeah
1: it's could be yeah I'm feeling like it was an
3: inspiration I think uh that is especially impressive to me to just overall for the movie that you have a male character who's dealing with something like that mm-hmm. it's as a topic, I feel like it's taboo, and i just I'm interested in things we don't see often yeah and so this particular issue is something that it feels revolutionary to yeah. see in a film in a what is technically an indie film but has become a little bit more mainstream just how popular it is mm-hmm. and yeah an actor who wants to do that who wants to take on that role and that challenge again just funny the hip- hypocrisy like what peter gallagher has to deal with and like oh he must be like his character he's vile he's evil yeah. you know there of course are people probably questioning steven soderbergh have impotency issues you know a lot of people right. are asking him how much of this is based off of you, and yeah. he, had, he says none of it. Every man, at, at least one point in their life, mm-hmm. has had a moment where they didn't get an erection when they wanted one. Right. And that is something that men don't talk about with each other, it's yeah. something you don't see in film. You always see a man immediately penetrating the woman. Yeah. She comes over, they lay down, close her off, they're already inside each other. Mm-hmm. And it, I just, that's what I think I gravitate so much to about the film is that honesty. Yeah. And uh, I think Soderbergh maintains an element of that throughout the rest of his work, but not to the degree yeah. of sex lies. It's so hard to track
1: yeah. Yeah. consistencies through his movies because they're all so different. Yeah. His next movie was like a black and white period piece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Did like you he, see Kafka? I've never seen it. No.
3: I'm curious.
1: Me too. There's a bunch of his movies I've never seen. I never saw Che. And I heard a lot mm-hmm. of people talk about how Che was amazing, but it's it's like a four it's hour epic. Too long. <laughs> but it's like the fact that he squeezed that in mm-hmm. like the same year he did like Magic yeah. Mike is crazy. Yeah. So she ends up going and talking to Cynthia about it. Which if they have such a contemptuous relationship with each other, it is interesting that they still do share everything with each other. She still goes over to her house and tells her sister all about Graham, knowing full well that Cynthia is going to be interested in Graham, you know, like, but it's like, so why does she do it? I don't know. You know, maybe I there's a part must of
3: be like a sibling thing that I, yeah. I, I can't relate to. Yeah, sometimes
1: you just, you can have that relationship, but mm. still, it's like, but of course, I tell her everything. Yeah, this is a good scene in which the, you really get more dynamics between the two sisters. But the main sort of narrative device of the scene is that you it's revealed that uh, Cynthia's missing a pearl earring; she can't find it, Anne knows that she can't find the pearl earring. That'll come back into play, and Cynthia basically forces Anne to give her. Graham's address so mm-hmm. that she could go which is crazy. Talk to him. So we see Spader in his apartment sitting naked on the floor watching a videotape of a woman
3: possibly jerking off.
1: Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Random woman she's talking about masturbating on a plane.
3: She was a crew member.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was the second AD. Mm-hmm. He initially went out to Jennifer Jason Lee to play the role of Cynthia. But she couldn't do it. Because she was already booked to shoot Miami Blues with uh, Alec Baldwin. Mm-hmm. But she really liked the script a lot. Yeah. And she was like, if there's anything else, let me know. So Soderbergh said, actually, there is this like, really small part. It's this woman on a videotape. So he called her up and he was like, would you want to do that? And she was like, sure, I'll do that. That sounds fun. And he was like, can you just film the tape yourself? And she was like, yeah, me and my boyfriend will do the tape. She filmed it and she hated it. And she called him up and she was like, I don't even want to send you the tape. I didn't really have good chemistry with my boyfriend while we were shooting it. I'm not happy with my performance. I don't think... Soderbergh could have made it work, though. Honestly, I think it's better. It would be yeah. so distracting if it was Jennifer Jason Leigh on that tape, just yeah. pops up. I mean, that's what
3: he wanted, a cameo.
1: It's. I think it's better as like an unknown person.
3: Yeah, it feels more real.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So he was like, okay, I'll find somebody else. And he said in the diaries that throughout the production, the second AD... She had been like a miracle worker. Every time they had a problem, she found a solution. She was very creative. So when Jennifer Jason Lee said, I can't be this person, they were like, well, who the fuck are we going to get? And he was like, well, she's knocked it out of the park with every other aspect of her job. Let's ask if she wants to play the part. And she was like, sure, I'll do it. And she went and talked to all of her friends and got all of her friends' sex stories and came and just totally improvised that masturbating on a plane thing based off of something that one of her friends told her. Mm -hmm. And he was like, of course, she fucking killed it. Look around you folks. You got people all around that that are as creative as anybody else. Mm -hmm. While he's watching the tape, Ann comes over.
3: He's like, am I interrupting anything? And he goes, I'll finish later.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't even know. And did you notice that when she comes in, she's wearing black. Mm -hmm. And in the restaurant scene, he's wearing black and she's wearing white. So there's sort of like this... Mm -hmm. devil and angel yeah she's trying out his look exactly she's like coming to the dark side a little Mm -hmm. bit and she's real flirtatious when she comes over she's in a real spunky mood Mm -hmm. and she takes the iced tea and she's like what are all these tapes here and she's like got a big old grin on her face and he's like oh it's just a personal project and she keeps digging she's like what are they and of course he can't lie
5: so all of these are our interviews huh Uh, yes can we watch one
2: No, I, uh, no.
5: Why not?
2: Well, I promised each of the subjects that no one would see the videotapes except for men. What are
5: the interviews about?
2: The interviews are about sex. Sex? What about sex? Uh, everything about sex. Like what? What they've done, what they do, what they want to do, but are afraid to ask for, what the, they wouldn't do even if asked. Um, any, anything I can think of. What your eyes?
5: You just ask them questions yes and they answer him?
2: Yeah uh, mostly sometimes they do things to you no to, uh, for the for the camera
5: Graham this is just so I'm sorry
2: uh, this came up I'm, what, I'm
5: no I'm sorry I'm I'm sorry this came up and'm I'm, I'm gonna go You're right I'll, I'll take it. Um.
2: okay Bye. Yeah. all right.
1: Personally, I think she feels like it's
3: a betrayal in a weird way because I think the whole she's reason. She formed a little crush on him and it's, yeah.
1: Well, and she's like, he's impotent. Yeah. You know, so I, part of that is that makes she him safe around, safe around him, him yeah. and more like him. Mm hmm. And, you know, obviously she has this weird relationship with sex. And so in her mind, she probably thinks, well, he's probably sexless like me. Mm -hmm. So this reveal that not only is he not sexless, but he's kind of got this weird way of doing it, I think totally freaks her out. Right. Because
3: her thing is she has no desire. She says she has no desire. Mm -hmm. And so then to reveal that, like, well, he does have a desire. He just can't act on it. They don't have as
1: much in common as she thinks. Yeah. And she has this great moment where she's she's not paying attention to the iced tea in her hands, and she spills it on the ground. Mm-hmm. So this is where my little theory comes in here, and it involves the tea. Okay. This is more of a feeling and a vibe than even a theory.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't know this when I was watching the movie, but Soderbergh reveals in the commentary that the iced tea came from James Spader, mm-hmm. and it was the idea that... like. James Spader wanted to give people something when they came in that would sort of disarm them. And he decided that everybody likes iced tea. Mm -hmm. So iced tea was the drink of choice. Before I learned that, I was thinking, why does he give everybody iced tea? And I couldn't help but when watching these scenes, think that the iced tea looks a whole lot like piss. (laughs) Okay, go with me here. She spills that iced tea, and then he cleans it up the same way you would clean up like a dog pissing on the floor. He throws newspaper on it. Mm-hmm. Which again made me think of piss. The first time they introduced each other, he says, I got to go to the bathroom.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: He's got his in- impotency stuff. His place has like um, sheets and blankets over the furniture, which to me feels like, in case I spew on him, I got to protect my furniture. Am I weird in thinking that everything involved in this man has something to do with like a dick? Like he is like a walking penis that like, pisses and come.
3: i don't know am i crazy i gotta do you got see a, where i'm going here? i gotta mull it over yeah i mean <laughs> <laughs> i don't know yes there's obviously a penis thing
1: there's going a penis on, thing no going doubt. on that's just one of my things i guess it, it was but when he explained the, that it was a way of disarming and stuff and everybody likes ice t i was like oh that makes perfect sense yeah. but i couldn't i didn't want to totally throw out my piss sure my piss feelings. yeah you could hold on to it I'm holding on to my piss. Also, by the way, it's for sure got to be sweet tea because mm-hmm. they're in Baton Rouge.
3: Yeah. You like sweet tea? I do. It's a little too sweet for me. But I think if you
1: didn't grow up in the good. South, everybody thinks it's too sweet. Yeah. But if you grew up in the South, <laughs> it's maybe the only way to drink it. <laughs> she leaves. And if you notice in the next scene when she calls her sister, Cynthia, she's fresh from a bath. Mm-hmm. She's washing that dirty, dirty Spader off of her. She went in dressed like Spader excited to be more spadery came out being like, Ooh, I got to get this black shirt off of me. I got to go take a shower. Mm-hmm. I got to wash cleanliness is godliness. off me. Yeah. So then Cynthia goes over and this is a real sexy
3: scene because Cynthia's like, I hear you do these tapes and I want to try one. Excuse me. What are you doing here? What, I'm sorry, but why are you here? No, I don't know. Why, why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> I would be asking the same question. Oh yeah.
1: But yeah, as you see, he ain't stopping. He's filling up them mm-hmm. tea glasses. Because look at Here's her. Here's some tea. Mm-hmm. Drink some of my piss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Lars N. Giacomo says, is this how you get off or something? Taping women about their sexual experiences? And he just goes, yes. Just <laughs> right away. So funny. <laughs> yes. He don't lie. Yeah. He don't lie. Oh, did you also notice too? He sits in a director's chair in this mm-hmm. moment. So it's like. That, a of a- I
3: saw that and I was like, that was all they had on set. They needed another, but chair. it works
1: perfectly because he is like the director, mm-hmm. and that's the thing. He's pretending like he's just talking, yeah. But he's in control of these situations. Mm-hmm. He's a he's he's got control. Yeah, I'm the captain now. He's the captain now. Mm-hmm. I come out of the scene with a question: Do you think Graham is a predator?
3: My gut tells me no, mm-hmm. because he he's not. Everything is about consent. True. He's very upfront with her about what it is. There's no touching. This is true. He doesn't ask them to touch themselves. It's all up to them. Mm -hmm. Um, When we see later on that she takes off her skirt, she says, do you want me to take off my skirt? And Mm -hmm. he says, if that's what you want to do, basically, he leaves it all up to them. Mm -hmm. So they consent to it. And so far, it seems like he's honored the promise to not share the videotapes with anybody. Yeah. I don't know. What's the problem?
1: Well, I agree in that sense, you know, there is something, um, I totally understand why it's appealing to women in general, because he's doing something that most men don't do, which is ask them about what they want. So that's got to be appealing for most women. It's like he's, he's being transgressive in the sense that, like, his intention is to interrogate your pleasures as a woman, your experiences as a woman. However, there's a little bit of trickery going on here when it comes to making people feel like, they are controlling the conversation You're t- you you t- you do whatever you want to do you say whatever you want to say but you know he's in control and the fact that he's taping them is a there's something you know it's like that collateral in uh, the nexium documentary you know they tape you saying all of your deepest darkest personal secrets with the guarantee that that will not be used but I don't think you could come out of this situation without a little bit of a nagging feeling of like, is that tape going to get but, exposed to but somebody? But
3: you're, you're implying that the problem is power dynamics, when power dynamics are not a problem in an environment of consent. If it was, then that would mean that DOM stuff, s and mm-hmm. bondage, all of that would be problematic. And it's not. It's a yeah. very safe space because everybody in that community consents, mm-hmm. and there's always a way out. And at any point, you can revoke consent. Yeah. So he has not demonstrated anything to me that shows that he would, uh, the film has not demonstrated anything that mm-hmm. says somebody wanted it to stop and he kept going. Right. That would show me this is problematic and he's abusing that power. But if he lays out, hey, I'm even if he had said, I'm on a power trip, mm-hmm. I like control, mm-hmm. I want to record these because I'm going to jerk off to them later, right. I'm never going to touch you. And I'm never going to tell you what to do, but I'm mm-hmm. going to ask you questions yeah. and anything you want to do is up to you. And they say yes to that. Yeah. And they come out of it feeling still good about it. Yeah. Great.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know where I fall in the debate. Yeah. I think the movie is kind of interested in that question because, you know, as we'll talk about, these things are not without repercussions. Andy McDowell gets a whole monologue to express how he's more dangerous than he thinks he is and that he has more power over other people's lives than he thinks he does. Yeah,
3: well that to me is like if you don't work you when you don't work out your problems, mm-hmm. you can't just assume you're the only one who suffers. Exactly. Everybody you drag everybody with mm-hmm. you, you know. Yeah. So they become a part of your problems. I thought that was a great scene. Yeah. You know, great observation.
1: He's he whether he is intending to be or not, he's dangerous. In this process that he's doing, is sort of dangerous. I mean, I like the character and I think ultimately as what the movie expresses and stuff, it's not he's not necessarily a predator, but there's predatory behavior in here that, you know, if you any outside person if this was happening in real life and you heard about this, you'd be like stay away from that guy. Because it's it just reeks of potential predatory. There's too there's too many ways it could get bad for you as the person who is like volunteering to be involved. Uh, Corey is back from her audition. How did it go?
4: I think very well.
1: Good to hear. Good to hear. I want to present the question to you real quickly because we just had a long conversation uh, based- I
4: can tell. I'm surprised you guys are not finished.
1: further.
3: <laughs> yeah, we're a little behind.
1: <laughs> um, but I want to present it to you since you're the female in the room. Uh-huh. Do you see James Spader's character as a predator at all?
4: No, no, because- the women are all agreeing to do it. Mm-hmm. Are It seems like they have some type of consent of like, yeah, as long as you don't show this. If he was to show it to anybody else, fuck yes, predator. Right. But if he is to keep his word that he has told these women, there's lots of people who send nudes to their partners or make videos with their partners and stuff like that. And you're trusting that that is going to stay between the two of you.
1: I think that's pretty much what Justin argued, too, is that it boils down to was consent asked. Mm -hmm. And do you have predatory intentions?
4: Yeah, he does it. He's he's telling the women exactly what he's going to do with it. And he's doing that exact thing. Yeah.
1: So after after Cynthia does her tape with Graham, she's horny and she calls up Peter Gallagher and says, get over here right now. and." The first shot you see of that sex scene is this Zolly shot on her face as she has a very intense orgasm while having sex with Which her.
3: I love that shot. And again, another shot he's embarrassed by. He was like, it was such a film school mm-hmm. thing to do. And I'm like, dude, shut up. You gotta do it. That is Neo, that moment is Neo realizing <laughs> he's the one at the end of the Matrix. I love it. So Anne gets the vibes
1: that John is cheating. She starts cleaning. This is kind of a funny sequence where she's feverishly cleaning the house. There's like Adderall style cleaning Mm -hmm. that she's doing. She's vacuuming and then she ends up vacuuming up the pearl earring that Cynthia has been missing. And now she knows. And this is a good shot, too, where it's a close-up on Andy McDowell's face as she just kind of comes to the complete realization of what's happening, and it holds on it for like 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And you just get to see her go through all these nonverbal emotions.
3: What a disgusting feeling that would be Mm. to realize that not only your husband's cheating on you, but it's your flesh and blood, your sister.
4: It's much like something that's happening. um, The zeitgeist right now on Vanderpump Rules. Have you heard any of this? The scandal. We won't get fully into it, but it's um, two life partners. They've been together for nine years. Own a home in Valley Village, three million dollar home. Ariana and Tom Sandoval. Ariana's the queen of the world. Tom Sandoval was cheating on her with one of her best friends in her house. While first night they he cheated on her was when her dog died. Their dog died. Then when she went home to deal with her family, um, because her grandma died, he brought raquel into the house and was fucking her left and right and they had a seven month affair
1: wow yeah one of her best friends yeah
4: it would be like me and you having an affair and she found it and jack finding out she found
1: a like a facetime video recording of it on them his phone. Ha- them
4: of them sex well not even sexing videoing she, found she that on him. his phone yes wow
1: and apparently he had an app that looked like a
4: Calculator? Calculator
1: app, but it was actually an app to store hidden pictures. Never heard of this. Are they still friends?
4: Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a Tom's huge- Tom's going down, 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 and Ariana is getting brand deals left and right. People, the the country has united in their love for her.
1: And he does have a mustache, and you have a mustache now, too, so just be careful out okay. there. He shaved right. off his
4: mustache, actually. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. okay. Well, you're, there you go. You're, 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 you're in the clear. I'm you're in safe. The clear.
1: Yeah. So, Andy McDowell decides in this moment to go over to Graham's. Maybe she's going to make one of those tapes. And there's a. this is where an interesting edit happens where she gets into the car to drive over to Graham's and she puts her hands against her ears and this like loud ringing horn sound like crescendos in the soundtrack and then all of a sudden hard cuts and she's in the same position in the car but the car is now at Graham's house and... Mm-hmm. I He's, like it yeah it's cool he said in the commentary that it was literally just because they didn't have like the money to do like a traveling shot and so he just got creative man hey sometimes you just gotta get creative yeah. she comes in she says my life is shit John's a fucking bastard I wanna make a tape okay
2: I'm you. tell me your name Anne Bishop Mulaney. So what do you want to talk about? what do you usually talk about? Sex.
5: Okay, let's talk about sex. Do
2: you have sex?
5: Not very often, no.
2: When you do, who usually initiates it? He does.
1: The music in this movie is done by Cliff Martinez.
3: I... Didn't realize Cliff Martinez was with Soderbergh every step of the way. Yeah, he's
1: been there the whole time. And
3: people might know him also, too, more recently from all the Nicholas Winding Refn Mm -hmm. movies. Really
1: great score for the Neon Demon. Spring Breakers. Mm -hmm. He's great. He's a good synthy guy. He's like a synthy, ethereal composer.
3: And this is what, like, when I watch movies from, you know, uh, going back to film school, Justin, movies like this and movies like Eraserhead and all of Lynch's work I'm I've always been really attracted to that synthy mm-hmm. landscape score. Yeah. And I feel like this movie does it in a way that doesn't feel dated to me. I no, know.
1: I mean like if you're ethereal with synth, I, it's not dated. You know, like sometimes some synth melodies like sound 80s. Mhm. But if you're if you're doing it in this sort of way where it's all the music in this kind of blends music and sound design together where it's like incorporating a lot of there's like some really powerful moments where mm-hmm. within the music you'll hear sounds that sound like industrial yeah like a blending of atmosphere with music the music is subtle in this movie until it suddenly grows into like something that makes you understand that it's there, yeah, and it's like really backing up the emotion of these scenes into a really effective degree. She convinces him, we cut out, we don't see the tape. But we see the, a- we see her we laying, see laying on after- the That's after- true, we see the after- aftermath, but yeah. you don't know what it means. It doesn't yeah. necessarily look post-coital. She's just laying on a couch, but it could be like the way but you it lay on a, a couch feeling. to do a therapy.
3: It has a feeling. There's a
1: vibe. She goes home, her hair's down, she looks like a lion, and she tells John, I want out of this marriage. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what? She's got this mad look on her face. And she goes, fuck you. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) She probably doesn't use the word. I mean, we know she doesn't use the word fuck. So this is big for her. And he's basically like, did you? what did you do? She's like, I went over to Graham's and he's like, did you make one of those goddamn videotapes? And it looks like he's going to hit her a couple of times. I know, really why, does she,
3: why doesn't she just focus on revealing? She... I know that you, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> he knows it's going to, she knows it'll hit him where it hurts. I right know. in the dick. Yeah. So he freaks out. He goes over to Graham's. He breaks into Graham's house, starts digging through the tapes. Graham's like, what are you doing? He punches him in the face, He grabs him. He throws him out onto the porch. He finds Ann's tape and he pops it in and he starts watching it. And I love this moment, like before we go into the tape, there's like slow push in on the T V and slow push in on Peter Gallagher watching it. And the music starts to really grow here and this mm. is it starts to feel scary. Like the music gets really sinister and suspenseful. Yeah. And it starts this is where it starts to incorporate all those industrial sounds and stuff. It's really cool.
3: I love when Spader asks her, Do you ever think about other men? And Peter cuts to Peter Gallagher and he goes here we go Yeah, he's just looking for Mm -hmm. a reason to turn it back around on her yeah
1: I'm the victim yeah Uh, and then we go into the tape and this is a beast of a scene we don't have to describe the whole thing because it's long but basically you know it starts out the way you would normally where he's asking her questions but then he ends up having a a Freudian slip where he says, Elizabeth, you're obsessed with Elizabeth. So she starts talking, like interrogating him, turning the tables on him. And he basically is like, kind of reveals why he doesn't lie anymore because he used to be a pathological liar. James Spader had a bunch of ideas for his backstory. And the big one that he was really connected to, that he really wanted, was that he had had a child with Elizabeth and the child turned out intellectually disabled. And he couldn't handle that. And so he abandoned them.
4: Oh my God. Well, then that would make a whole nother movie.
1: Soderbergh never liked it, but he tried to entertain it for Spader's idea. And he even wrote a draft of the script with that in there, which Soderbergh says, I pray never gets out. Yeah, because <laughs> <just> that makes <laughs> him a monster. Embarrassed by it. And so he eventually was like, convinced Spader to let that go and made it this sort of slightly vaguer. Backstory, but I think it's better. It's better that we don't know exactly. Of course. We get all yeah. the information we need. He hurt somebody and he didn't mean to.
2: I've got a lot of problems. But they belong to me. You think they're yours, but
5: they're not. Everybody that walks in that door becomes part of your problem. Anybody that comes in contact with you I didn't want to be part of your problem, but I am. I'm leaving my husband, and maybe I would have anyway, but the fact is that I'm doing it now. And part of it is because of you.
1: He kind of can't deny it. He's realizing, like, I'm just as fucked up as I've always been. As much as I try, I still fuck shit up. She ends up going over to him, caressing him, using his hand to caress her own face. It's a sort of slow intimate sexy scene. They go down, they kiss. They have a really nice kiss. And then uh Spader gets up, turns that camera off, and then McDowell lays back on on the couch with her hair
3: down. And we don't know what what happened. Bound chicken wow, What do you think? Do wow. You think uh something happened? Think they touch? Patty played patty cakes? I think they probably did.
4: Patty cakes. That's,
3: that's a Roger Rabbit reference. Mhm.
4: don't like it? They played patty cake, <laughs> not patty cake. And then it
1: cuts back to Peter Gallagher. He's watching the TV. All that's, by the way, like a 12 minute scene. It's like huge. He walks out on his way out. He tells Graham, hey, by the way, I fucked Elizabeth while you were still
3: dating. Before, before you, you even had, had problems. problems. <laughs> Just like, I'm going to
1: get the last word. I'm going to be uh-huh. the big asshole here. Yeah.
3: She was a good lay. That's mm-hmm. about all I can that's- say about it. <laughs> yeah. oh my God. Ooh. So vicious. But she had
1: secrets too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty vicious. Graham goes in, destroys all the tapes. He ain't doing that. shit. That's this
3: devastating, anymore. dude. Could you imagine yeah. how much damage that did in such a short amount of time? You think that you're the problem? You think that you are a pathological liar and you've ruined the relationship and you ran away not realizing that you're, the man whose arms you ran into has been fucking your mm-hmm. girlfriend
1: for years? It's cruel.
3: What a villain. He's such a villain.
1: Yeah. That's why he didn't get cast and things after this, because people thought he was that guy. Rude and dumb. Idiots. But
3: those eyebrows though. Yeah, you can't I mean, yeah, come on. Sexy guy. Those Peter Gallagher baby blue eyes. Like (laughs) like the Mediterranean Sea.
1: So then the movie wraps itself up. We get a scene where she goes and she brings Cynthia a peace offering. She brings her a plant. They have a little moment where it's like, I'm going to allow you to still be my sister. I'm yeah, not going sweet. to shut you out of my life. Did
3: you know that the guy who is a regular at the bar is a director?
1: I heard, yeah. He's directed Heavyweights. <laughs> like that guy.
3: Heavyweights, he wrote The Mighty Ducks. Wow. Mr. Deeds. He directed Mr. Deeds. couple of Adam Sandler movies. Wow.
4: He felt comedy vibes. Hey, yeah. You're funny. wearing blue. He- I'm wearing blue. <laughs> yeah. Is that a coincidence?
3: He totally, <laughs> ate- we've all worked in bars. He, Totally feels like a rain, Oh my mm-hmm. god,
4: yes. Yeah. Spot on.
3: Problematic, adjacent, and oh, yeah. You put up with it for the cash. Uh-huh. Yeah.
4: Kind of funny where yeah. you're like not totally threatening, dang.
1: but just kind of annoying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you get the final scene where Anne goes over to Graham's, meets him on the porch, they embrace, they sit down together, and Ann says, I think it's going to rain. And James Bader says,
3: It is raining. <laughs> slow fade out fade to black it's a baffling final scene (laughs) but i i love it any
1: interpretations on that
3: with rain comes change Mm -hmm. you know washing things away starting new fresh he's saying i
1: think that's happening yeah Mm -hmm. do you want to know the real story
4: Uh, he was being a jackass is it piss related
1: (laughs) (laughs) Corey missed my my piss theory you'll hear it when you listen back to it can't wait they didn't there was no dialogue scripted for this scene They shot it a few times with no dialogue. And then they said, uh, Soderbergh said, improvise whatever you want on this one. He said it was actually starting to rain. It was, you can't really tell in the shot, but it was starting to sprinkle. Andy McDowell just said, I think it's starting to rain. And James Spader said, it is raining. And Soderbergh in his diary says, I know this line is going to cause people to have all sorts of theories. (laughs) But it's literally just them improvising it. And I liked it it the best. So I stuck it in there. It's
3: great.
4: Well, folks. If you believe it. That's the end of the movie. <laughs> the end of the movie.
3: We're going to take a quick break. Jim and right. Andy. Jimmy Spader. Andy McDowell. Whoa. There we go. There's wow. our tie. Alternate
1: title. <laughs> um, we'll be right back with our final thoughts on Sex, Lies, and Videotape right after this.
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: See them all the
0: See them all the best. See them all the
4: them all
1: Welcome back to Cinema Possessed. We're talking sex lies and I'm with my best guys and we're doing final thoughts. Corey, I'm going to start with you. Final thoughts on sex lies and videotape.
4: I really like this movie. It's everything I love about independent cinema. It's a simple story, yet very complex, excellent acting.
1: Did you like it this much the first time you saw it or do you, this is sort of like coming to it after the second time you liked
4: it? I think it I start. liked it better the second time but i liked it the first time that i saw it too i just had a w- way stronger feelings maybe i was going through something who knows you
1: were mad <laughs> i remember when there? the movie was over you were like the one thing out of your mouth is you just like she sucks
4: <laughs> <laughs> jack thought i was I so like misogynistic maybe i was um but yeah i i really liked then the next day seeing her daughter in a movie that was also very sex related once again that's my My plug for people to go see that movie. Yeah, I'm going to go see it. Sanctuary. And yeah, I really liked it. I found it inspiring. Justin, how about you? And what are you going to do with that blue?
3: It's weird to summarize a movie at the end of a three-hour conversation where you're talking about how much you love the movie. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean. No need for a long summary. To recap, Unbelievably impressive that this is a 25, 26-year-old filmmaker, yeah. mm-hmm. bright-eyed, bushy-tailed loser who comes out onto the scene with no experience in life whatsoever mm-hmm. and can tell such a deeply personal human story that yeah. is still resonating with us today. It was an inspiration for me back then continues to be. I always dream about telling a very simple basic story with no style i think you and i are always driven to do style based things but Mm -hmm. i do think it would be interesting to consider something a little slower like this and especially in this day and age of fast moving Mm -hmm. you know darkness and whatnot i I'd, i'd love to explore something a little bit more uh simple, you know.
1: Well, I mean, I think as we spoke about too, there is still a lot of style. It's just mm-hmm. not real showy style, but like he talks about, you know, if you watch it the camera's always moving. It's not moving super fast, yeah. but it's always moving it's and it's moving in interesting ways that yeah. keep you engaged.
3: Well, it's just not it's not he's yeah. I mean, when I say style, I mean he's not like throwing the camera around right. like Scorsese or, you know. Yeah, there were a few movies that came up early American 70s cinema that inspired him that I wanted to kind of check out. Carnal Knowledge. Carnal Knowledge. Last Picture Show. Last Picture Show, Five Easy Pieces. There's no upgrade path here for me. This is the best version of the movie that exists, Mm -hmm. according to me and Soderbergh. There is no better print. And yeah, I'm keeping it.
1: I have to agree wholeheartedly, completely on all those things. I love the film. It's one of my favorites of his filmography. Uh, I'd have to really go through to see where it fit on the list, but I would say it's definitely in the top five Soderberghs for me. I've watched it a lot. I enjoy coming back to it. I like this era of filmmaking. I love James Spader. I love Andy McDowell. I love Peter Gallagher, and I love Laura San Giacomo. And if you love all four of those people, you got your perfect film here. I'm not going to upgrade either because I got the best copy in the world,
3: folks. I have a bad habit of falling in love. Well, I think where when you were younger... I think mm-hmm. you fell in love with filmmakers and mm-hmm. I wasn't at the place where I really understood that too much. So I would fall in love with films and not really know where to go from there. Mm-hmm. And it keeps happening to me where, you know, I a movie like Sex, Lies and Videotape, just where do I go? And now because of the pod and a lot of other reasons, I'm motivated to sort of explore the film in context of. The movies before and after mm-hmm. so in this case i'd love right as soon as i can i'm gonna watch kafka mm-hmm. and his next couple of movies all of which did not do well no after but i'm excited to kind of see where it's at even though they don't look anything a al- lot that's part of i think the turnoff for me in exploring his catalog i don't feel this way when i go through someone like spike lee i'm like oh i see a trajectory mm-hmm. here yeah. this is very exciting that's Exciting to me is seeing somebody grow, Mm -hmm. explore new themes, get more worldly, get more into the craft.
1: Well, you know, you're going to get a dose of that thing you liked from the previous one, whereas it's not a guarantee with a Soderbergh. You may not get the same, you're not going to get the same Sex Lies videotape dose
3: from Kafka. I'm curious to see if there's another film where he gets this personal.
1: Well, now that we've said everything there is to say about Sex Lies and videotape. What do you say we play the Sex, Lies, and Video Game? It's going to be a short quiz, folks, because the premise of the game is that every question has the word sex, lies, and videotape in it, and that was really hard for me to do, so I only have five questions instead of seven. (laughs) Question number one. In the 1990 thriller Bad Influence, James Spader is lured into a web of sex, lies, and videotapes by a CD character played by what actor?
4: Never even heard of this movie, so Justin's gotta get it.
1: No. I actually, I, know for a fact Justin has seen this movie. I have seen Bad Influence. Yep, we watched it together. It's very cable guy. Uh huh. But not funny. Uh huh. 1990. Uh huh. James Spader is lured into a web of sex lies and videotapes. There is a prominent subplot where he is videotaped. Uh huh. Doing something. That is going to upend his life and the character who comes in, who is very much like Jim Carrey and the Cable Guy, starts out as a best friend. He empowers him to like stand up to the people who he doesn't Uh like, but he's a fucking psychopath that's going to ruin his whole life. I don't think I'm going to pull this one out. I've never even heard of this movie, so I can't help. Rob Lowe. James Spader and Rob Lowe. Worth a revisit, sounds like. Sounds like it's worth a revisit. All right, zero points for everybody. Question number two. James Woods finds himself also lured into a web of sex and lies before having a videotape implanted into his stomach in this sci-fi body horror classic.
3: Video drum.
1: Ding, ding, ding. Justin has one point. Corey, zero. What's going on? I've not heard of that movie either. (laughs) (laughs) Question number three. This 2005 thriller stars a sexy Viggo Mortensen, who lies about his past and was the
3: last Hollywood oh, film I... to ever be widely released on videotape. Just in a history of violence. Correct, I, I him know no. that movie. That's a good one. I want to really rewatch. I want to rewatch that. Corey and I rewatched it it's a couple fun. months ago. It's yeah. really good. Question It's based f- on a comic book.
1: I've heard. Yeah, doesn't have comic book vibes, but I can understand. Was it like a graphic novel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Cronenberg, just talked about him 2 episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Question number 4. Long before the sex scandals and alleged lies about his relationship with Brooke Shields, this Michael Jackson music video sold millions of copies on videotape.
3: Justin bad? <laughs>
4: Billy Jean. Thriller? Justin,
3: Thriller. Corey
1: got it. But she didn't say her. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Brooke Shields is in Thriller?
1: No, 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 no. Long before his sex scandals and alleged lies about his relationship oh, with her. Oh, you're
4: Brooke just, Shields, okay, got it.
1: Okay. He t- claimed he was in a relationship with Brooke Shields got and it, she was like, it. no, we were not. Got he was lying. Final question. It's two to one. Mm-hmm. This question is worth... Two points. So whoever gets it, we got it. Question number five. This savagely cheeky horror film involves a sex dungeon that lies beneath a house and contains a ghastly videotape collection. Say the beginning again. This savagely cheeky horror film involves a sex dungeon that lies beneath a house and contains ghastly videotape collection.
4: Cory Barbarian?
1: Cory wins the Sex, Lies, and Video Game. And that, my friends, is the show. Follow us on social media, at Cinema Possessed Pod, where we announce next week's movie ahead of time. And if you want to get in touch with us, email us at cinemapossessedpod at gmail.com. And if you want to get even more possessed, head on over to patreon.com slash cinemapossessedpod and unlock the Cinema Possessed bonus materials, our bi-monthly bonus episodes where we talk about more than just what's in our collection. Plus, you'll gain exclusive access to Patreon-only giveaways and community message boards. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your pods. They're important, folks. We need those reviews. Send them in. Justin, what movie are we talking about next week?
4: Next week, we're talking about the Darjeeling Limited.
1: <laughs> you heard that correct, folks. We're talking about Wes Anderson's Darjeeling Limited. And as always, keep watching the movies you love and stay possessed.
4: Later. 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 Peace.
1: Sex, bye, and videotape.
5: Oof. Oh. <sighs>